Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. Hey guys, welcome to our 29th Patreon episode of A True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So as always, we want to start by thanking you guys. We are just through the moon about how many people are joining Patreon. This community keeps growing and growing, and we're just getting really pumped about it. So We are. And honestly, we, both of us are super on edge because we have the move happening soon and everything. So, And I might be going back to school, might not be. It's It's a little chaotic. I don't know how to... Usually I'm all planned through November by the end of July because I'm a neurotic freak when it comes to like my lesson plans. So um, I'm a little panicked because I don't know if I'm going virtual, if we're going in class or if it's going to be a hybrid of both. I don't know how long the class periods are going to be. I So I'm just like a jumbled mess of maniac. Yeah. So <laughs> it's safe to say that, of course, bringing you guys another Patreon episode right now is a perfect way for us to um, disconnect from everything that's going on. Yes. Um, and I'm sure I hope, you know, for you guys, it's the same thing. And um, here we go. Yeah. So today we're going to start a pretty detailed and exhaustive episode on the serial killer Israel Keys. Now, when I write these episodes, I always make it a point to focus on the victims and I try to do them justice, not just in the aspects of the crimes that were committed against them, but also to represent who they were and really who the world lost when they were taken from their families and loved ones. And that is still my intention today. To the best of my abilities, I want the victims and possible victims of Keys to be treated with the most respect and care. But I would be lying if I said we're not going to focus on the man himself. When the narrative of what happened to these victims is coming directly from the killer, we are going to have to analyze his his mental state and what what he's motivated by because that's what's driving the narrative that we're actually listening to so we have to think okay what do we need to take with a grain of salt and and what's truly believable and you know we we are a true crime community right so our interest lies within wanting justice for the victims and treating them with respect at all times but we also do have a fascination with how the criminal mind works and Keyes is one of the most puzzling figures when it comes to his MO, his criminality. So we will be talking about him when it comes to the how and why. Yeah, I mean, and it wouldn't do it any justice if we didn't cover every little facet of the entire case and, you know, within the mind of the serial killer and his victims. So Right, and just um, what's pretty interesting about Keyes is that he is a character who has pulled from past serial killers. And he's kind of adjusted the way he operates based on what they did, what worked and what didn't work. So that's where our minds have to go too. Like we have to analyze him in order to stop and prevent someone very similar to Keys or possibly even worse from perpetrating. Agreed. Okay, so are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do it. So Israel Keyes is known just as much for the lengthy taped interviews that he had with investigators and prosecutors as he is for the crimes he committed. The one thing that he always said when he finally agreed to discuss the murders that he committed was that he wanted to start at the end. It just made things easier that way. 
So this is also where we are going to start, but not because he made those rules. It just makes things easier. And it's always better to know that the monster is caught. Yeah. <laughs> it gives it gives you a little bit more peace knowing, okay, this guy has been captured. Now we're learning about what he did versus the unknown of when is he going to be stopped. So we are going to tell the story with him already behind bars, which is, you know, pretty good. It's a sigh of relief. Yes. So that means our story will begin in Anchorage, Alaska, a part of America's last frontier. People from Alaska, as I'm sure they will all gladly tell you, consider themselves to be Alaskan before they do American. It is an unforgiving land that offers its residents untold beauty and an uninterrupted escape from the rest of the world. But with that being said, living in the state can pose certain threats. Cabin fever is a very real thing, especially during those 67 days a year when Alaskans see limited sunlight. But it is most dangerous to be a woman in Alaska. According to statistics provided by the FBI and the United States Census Bureau, Alaska is second only to Tennessee as the nation's most violent state. Despite higher than average incomes, a low poverty rate, and a sparse population density, violent crimes are surprisingly frequent. The Anchorage Daily News reported that more than 37% of all Alaskan women reported some form of sexual assault during their lifetime. I wonder why that is. Like, I mean, is it because they think that maybe because they're so out, you know, in an area where there's, I don't know, maybe there's no repercussions because there's nobody around? It's a little bit more of like a lawless setting. Yeah, or like maybe because like there's limited sunlight and people do things in the dark kind of. I don't know. Yeah. Also, I mean, you have to think about it statistically from that point of view is that when there's less of a population, say like 37% of women in Alaska is a lot smaller of a number than 37% of women, say like in the state of New York. So you can take that into perspective and you have to look at that when analyzing statistics. But no matter what the population is, 37% of women reporting this, I mean, that's pretty terrible. Oh, absolutely. And because of that fact, you would have thought that the owners of the coffee kiosks that were scattered all across major Alaskan cities would be a little bit more careful about allowing their young, oftentimes teenage female employees to work by themselves late at night. And I might add that in the summertime, these girls are often encouraged to wear bikinis. So what these coffee kiosks are, there's... It's kind of like a like a little like pop-up shop where it's like a coffee shop. So it's mostly in parking lots of like kind of major retailers. Where it's almost like a bodega store sort of. But a little bit more permanent. But yeah, exactly. Like but a permanent of a, structure. Yeah, exactly. One of the teenage girls who was working by herself late at night on February 1st, 2012 was 18-year-old Samantha Koning. Although it was late at night during the winter, her kiosk had been very busy that evening. The stand that she worked at had a Home Depot across the road and a very busy gym behind it. People were always stopping in and getting coffees to fuel either their workout or their construction project. So between customers, Samantha had been texting her boyfriend, Dwayne. Her and Dwayne had been dating for nine and a half months at that point. And for the last eight months of that time, Dwayne lived with her and her father. That night, he had the truck that the couple shared. 
he had driven it to work where he was a dishwasher because he was supposed to get off from his shift earlier than she was supposed to. So the plan was for him to pick her up once she closed up the kiosk for the night. But the two were fighting. Samantha was accusing him of flirting with other girls and possibly having cheated on him with one of them. And that gets nasty in teenage relationships. <laughs> oh, oh my God, yeah. I mean, that's pretty bad. <laughs> pretty brutal. So in the messages, Dwayne is trying to calm her down and reassure her that he had been flirting with another girl. He couldn't deny it because Samantha saw the text messages, but he had not cheated on her, that he loved her. You have to think, too, it's actually pretty crazy to think that the couple, he moved in with Samantha and her father only a month and a half into their relationship. So things got pretty serious pretty fast. And that's hard when you're young. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Their conversations were sporadic throughout the night, each replying to each other when they had a free second at work. But it seemed like Samantha was calming down. She had also texted her father. She asked him if he would stop by and drop off dinner for her because she was starving. Her father, James, who usually doted on his daughter, said that he could not. Now, James Coning is an interesting character, very polarizing. He was a wonderful father. Everyone said this. He loves Samantha unconditionally. In his day-to-day life, however, some would consider James um, a character that you would not necessarily want to associate yourself with. He was a known drug dealer and had gotten into a lot of trouble with the law. But he was raising his only daughter by himself. Um, Samantha's mother was in her life, as was the rest of her mother's family, but she lived full-time with her father at 18 years old. So... Really, it was only Samantha that could calm, like, James's temper down. He was known to have a pretty rough temper. And life wasn't always easy for Samantha. She had a lot of troubles in her short life. Early in her high school career, she had a drug problem, and she was cutting a lot of classes. She was about to make the decision to drop out of school when she changed her mind. She was going to stay. She stopped with the hard drugs and chose to focus her attention on her two dogs and her niece. Um, She had a half-sister through her mother. So soon after, she had met Duane, and the two of them began planning their future, and that kind of gave Samantha a little bit of a direction. Samantha told him that she was unsure of what she was going to do exactly when she graduated that year. She thought she could work with animals because she loved taking care of them and it came as kind of like a second nature to her, but she also dreamed of joining the Navy and becoming a nurse. So despite his harmless teenage flirting, Dwayne really did love Samantha and he told her that he would support whatever she wanted to do. Later that night, Dwayne went to pick Samantha up from the kiosk. However, when he got there, he noticed that it was dark and that the door was locked. He figured that maybe she was still angry with him and she had gotten a ride home from her father or maybe somebody else. So he made the decision to drive back to his house. When Dwayne got inside, he asked James if Samantha was home. And James told him that she wasn't home, that he was supposed to bring her home. But Dwayne explained that she was probably just pissed at him and she would be home soon. However, while the two men were sitting at the kitchen table, Dwayne received a text message from Samantha's phone. The message read, spending a couple of days with friends, let my dad know. James and Dwayne both agreed that this message did not sound anything like what Samantha would have said, not even like the way she texted. 
Right, because, like, isn't it funny, though, how we all have, like, a way we text, almost just, like, how like, we have a way of talking? It's definitely, like, the same. So, like, yeah, you could totally figure, like, that's not the person that I speak to all the time through text message or, or phone conversations. Yeah, it's you kind of tell. like a digital, fo- like, fingerprint. Yeah, it if is. If you think about oh, it. Absolutely. Like, like for me, I don't put periods in anything. I just, I just type away. You just flow. I just flow. And it's <laughs> terrible sometimes because then I realize what I'm saying necessarily doesn't make sense. Most of your text messages don't make sense. I know. That's the problem. <laughs> but yet you've done a great job of, job of decoding them. So Right. I am now fluent in John text <laughs> <Yeah>. language. <laughs> yeah. So both men believed that they weren't able to report someone missing, especially Samantha, because she's 18 and now she's considered an adult, for 24 hours. So they did not contact the police. They chose to wait and see if she would come home. And if she didn't, then they said they were going to call the police. Later that night, James and Duane had heard a noise outside of their home. Duane went to look out the front door. He had thought he heard something by his and Samantha's truck. He saw a hooded figure running away from the truck. And he thought that it was strange, but he went back into the house and told James that it had only been someone running away. That they had their hood up, so he couldn't really tell who it was. They still didn't call the police. I mean, it's a little odd. Yes. It's a little odd. Later, um, a, de- a detective with the Anchorage Police Department is really going to call into question the fact that Dwayne and James aren't calling the police at this point. Because not only is Samantha missing, you think a weird text message came in, but now there's also a hooded figure running from your house, and it looked like he was coming from the direction of the truck. So... That is when suspicions are going to really be directed from the Anchorage Police Department to James and Dwayne. Right. And I, I mean, you can't really blame the police because they literally have nothing to go on, in, you know, at the current moment. So, right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the only option that you have, right? It's just weird that they wouldn't call, but I think something's going to happen later that's going to really indicate why that phone call didn't take place. So finally, the next day, after Samantha had still not returned home, James Koning called the Anchorage police station to report his daughter missing. The first thing that the police did was get a statement from James and Duane, who explained that she was not at the kiosk when Duane went to pick her up, and that she sent them a bizarre text message that they did not believe originated from her. The police immediately go to the kiosk and ask the manager if she could provide them with the surveillance tape to kind of see what happened when Samantha closed up the kiosk. And the manager is going to comply. From the surveillance tape, they see that someone approaches the wide, low-serving window at around 8 p.m. Samantha takes their order, as usual, and can be seen casually making the drink. When she approached the window again, her whole body language changed. She backed up and put her hands in the air. She was clearly scared. She had been instructed to turn off the lights and the open sign of the kiosk and then kneel down on the ground. She complied. She got cash out of the register and went to hand it to whoever was still outside the kiosk window. She then got up to turn around, most likely thinking, okay, this is now over, and then was shocked when the man jumped through the open serving window into the kiosk with her. And this is a big guy. I mean, he doesn't seem like he's overweight in any way, but he's really tall. So 
the way he jumped through the window was like with such agility that it was kind of a jarring thing to to watch. Well, it's super aggressive. And, you know, if you watch the surveillance video, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty intense. Yeah. And everything happens extremely quickly. Like, I think that's probably what happened in her mind was that like, wow, I'm caught off. Like she was caught off guard. Everything happened so fast. It was like lightning quick. A hundred percent. And we will link that video in the show notes below. So you'll be able to watch the surveillance tape. And it's it's definitely something that's alarming yeah. to see. So from what is visible from the kiosk security footage, he had a stronghold of her and walked her out of the kiosk towards the parking lots. Now, this is shocking footage that p- the police saw. The Anchorage police knew that this was not an investigation that they could handle on their own. So they contacted their local FBI field office, which was actually located in Anchorage as well. The special agent worked in conjunction with the detectives from the Anchorage police station on the case. The special agent noticed right away problems that they would have with the case. Early on in the investigation, before police had seen the video, the Anchorage Police Department did not tape off the coffee kiosk as a crime scene, as Originally, they didn't believe they were dealing with a missing persons case. Like I said before, their original thought was that James and Dwayne had something to do with this, or this is just a girl that had kind of went away and she kind of wanted to do her own thing. It's not something that's uncommon, especially with teenage girls that have had a troubled past. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate, though, when, when you have like that kind of perfect storm happening where now the credibility of like, you know, that person kind of, like, hinders the investigation. Like, I mean, you should have that whole place taped off and investigated because you literally have a video that shows her being, you know, held at gunpoint or some sort of, like, with a weapon or some sort of, had to have been. Yeah, she was surprised about something. I mean, come on. And then and then her being taken out and escorted, like, out into the parking lot to a car. Right. So it's a little bizarre that you have that and you're not... You're not doing, like, the right investigation. But I will admit, though, for the police, the Anchorage police, to get the FBI involved is kind of a smart move, knowing that they can't handle that. Oh, yeah. They knew that they didn't have the resources to properly handle this case and that they needed the help of, you know, it's just good to have that extra help. And so, and it's great when egos don't get in the way and a police department can say, hey, listen, we're going to need your resources and your manpower because, you know, we just may not have it in our police department. Right. And also in defense of the Anchorage Police Department, because I don't want to put all the blame on them. Let's not forget, James and Dwayne took a long time to tell them that she was even missing. So they didn't call until the kiosk was already open for business the next day. The only thing that I would say to that is, and I agree with you, but let's just, the only thing that I think is a little bizarre, though, is you have to remember, though, too, that they wouldn't probably do anything until uh, until at least a full 24 hours or more, right? Because somebody has to be declared 48 hours missing, right? Well, that's not necessarily the case. It, it's it's really determined on a case-to-case basis, the whole 24 hours, yeah. 48 hours okay. thing. But I would say that the issue here was that it took a long time for the phone call to take place. Then their statements had to be taken. Then they went to the kiosk. So, like, there was a lot of time that really all of the evidence that could have been found at the kiosk if there were to have been any evidence, it would have been inadmissible. A good defense attorney would have been able to speak it away with all of the contamination that really took place. Right. 
So really, the reason the Anchorage Police Department was most suspicious in the beginning was because their distrust really lie with the victim's father. He was not thought of too highly, and throughout the investigation, the female detective, her name is Detective Dahl, there's two detectives that are on the case, Detective Dahl and Detective Bell. And the female detective, Dahl, she is really suspicious of him the entire time. And I think she has a little bit of cause to be. We'll get into that later. So James Koning, although a man with a shady background, was advocating for his missing daughter like no one the media had ever seen. James would talk to the media anywhere for any length of time. He made daily pleas for the safe return of his daughter. He organized searches and vigils and ran a Facebook page dedicated to the return of Samantha. He also encouraged all of those out there to contribute to a reward fund that would be given out if anyone could give any information that would lead to Samantha being found alive. That's the key word. Um, Within weeks of the investigation, the FBI and the Anchorage Police Department yielded nothing. But the reward fund continued to grow, and it actually got to $41,000. And that's a, you know, a lot for a reward. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's great. So there was a lot of tension within Anchorage. The investigators were doing all that they could with zero physical evidence. And finally, the detectives from the Anchorage Police Department had James and Duane in for questioning. Detective Dahl said that she was still convinced that they were hiding something. This was a big contention between the Anchorage Police Department and the FBI because the police department believed James was somehow involved, whereas the FBI believed that this was a kidnapping committed by someone else entirely. So once they went home, she chose to accompany some officers to their residence on Iowa Street. Detective Dahl was convinced that this was in some way a scheme. When they arrived at their door, James poked his head through the door and did not even allow the detective or the officers to see inside of his home. No matter how she asked, it was clear that James Koning did not want police inside of his house. So giving up for the time being, Detective Dahl asked to speak with Dwayne. Dwayne is going to kind of like slink his way outside of the front door, still not allowing them to look inside. And he's going to speak with the detective outside, like kind of by the truck area. The night that Samantha went missing, he told the detective that he had seen a hooded figure near the truck that he shared with Samantha and that when he came outside, the figure ran away. He said that the man was hooded and that it looked like he had some kind of mask on the same way the guy looked in the surveillance video. And you didn't think to call the police, the detective asked. And he said the same thing that James Koning did. No, he thought he could only call the police after someone was missing for 24 hours. And then he said he didn't think anything of the guy being by the truck. But he admitted that Samantha's driver's license and debit card was missing from within the top visor. And he knew that it was in there when he was at work the day before. She was shocked that this was not reported and only made her more suspicious of what was going on in the Koenig family house. It was interesting too, she thought, the whole 24 hours thing. James said the same thing when he called in about the disappearance of Samantha, but that was not necessarily a fact. 
Mm, that's a little bit interesting, I mean, don't you think? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, we we don't know how the Anchorage Police Department would have responded if they called immediately. They may have said, you got to wait some time. They really might have. Yeah, we don't know what would have happened. So I, mean, I don't, don't... want to say they were right or wrong in not calling. Right. When Detective Dahl told the special agent from the FBI what she had learned, he agreed that there was something strange going on. So a warrant was issued for the house of Samantha Koning. Once it was executed by the Anchorage Police Department, they found what James Koning was trying to hide. It appeared that he and Duane had a growing operation set up within their residence. It seemed that up until that point, the only thing that James was guilty of was growing pot in his house. And that explains a lot because that's why he didn't want them to go inside. Um, That also explains why they probably didn't call that night. Right. And that also explains why there was probably a hooded figure there. I could literally write that off. Maybe he literally did a sale and the guy was (laughs) getting, you know, getting what he wanted and and leaving. Or it could have been that they oftentimes deal with people that may know they're selling and growing out of their home. So they do have shady people that come and might really try to rob them sometimes. You're 100% right. And so now things are starting to come together where now I don't think that they're guilty of anything at this point. Yeah. It's kind of it's interesting though. <laughs> so in the future, and I'll, I'll just add it in at this point, James Coning does spend some of that reward money. And that's one thing that people kind of had a little bit of a problem with him about because that money was supposed to be for someone to give a reward for your missing daughter. Also, the fact that he had to add that caveat in that that person would only be rewarded the money if Samantha was found alive. So it was almost like he was setting it up that he would receive the money. Yeah, I mean, it is odd to use that money. Yeah. Um, But I don't know if that proves that he's involved in any way i think that proves that maybe he's not this doting father that we originally thought he was that's the media kind of portrayed him Correct. today um yeah when asked about why he spent the money he said that samantha's salary helped pay the bills and now they didn't have that one-third contribution despite the fact that they're selling marijuana so that's why he spent the money that's what he said I mean, like I said, it just shows his what character. Are you do? Yeah, yeah, it shows his character. It doesn't show that he's a do, murderer or anything. And this does not mean in any way that we do not feel terrible that this man's daughter has been taken away. And I think that he was a good advocate. And when you are the parent of a missing child, you do have to keep their name in the media so people are looking and pressure is on investigators to solve this crime. But at the same time, that doesn't always mean that these people are pillars of society. Right. I mean, listen, there's give and take, right? I mean... Everyone's human. Yeah. So over time, James would remain vocal about wanting his daughter's safe return. The vigils and searches continued, as did his desperate pleas. One thing is, it's winter in Alaska. So what a lot of people thought was when the spring came and the snow melted, that they might find Samantha. Which is a possibility, right? I mean, you never know. Through the efforts of James and many other Anchorage citizens, there was not one building that did not display a close-up picture of the beautiful Samantha with bright red letters printed above her head that read, Kidnapped, and the reward money below. 
After the search warrant had been executed, the FBI learned of another way the Anchorage Police Department had not necessarily done the best things in the investigation. They found out that they had never asked businesses surrounding the kiosk for their surveillance tapes as well. And this was weeks into the investigation. I mean, that's that's pretty significant because you have to think that on any timeline, you're playing a game of catch-up, you know? Oh, yeah. So you're already behind. So it's kind of like, okay, well, you've let two weeks or several weeks go by now um, without even doing the proper, like, surveillance or, like... Protocol. Protocol. So it, it's like, you're not doing the right thing here. I, I know, like, it's it just sucks because... These little things, right, can turn an investigation, you know, around. Completely around. You know, so you for you to miss these little breadcrumbs sucks. And it's, once again, it is normal. It's human to forget these things, I guess. But they're major in an investigation. So. Right. But it is good that they did call in the FBI because it's clear that they knew, like, hey, we are totally out of our... Yeah. yeah. Like, and you we know can't do this. And there's... And forget about this case... There's so many cases where I'm sure that has been an issue. You know, so it's not just right. the Anchorage Police Department. It's it's a lot of police departments across the entire country, exactly. even around the world even. People just, you know, there's steps that are missed. So the special agent had made the mistake of assuming that they did ask others and that they just didn't have them available. But luckily enough, the Home Depot, which was located across the street on Tudor Drive, um, they did have a surveillance tape that was pointed towards the direction of the kiosk. And they still had the tape, despite the fact that a lot of time had went by. So they were lucky in the fact that they still had the tape. The surveillance video from the Home Depot answered a lot of questions the investigators had. The man that went to the window at around 8 p.m. that night and kidnapped Samantha had gotten out of a white pickup truck, and he had brought the girl into the white pickup truck and placed her in the passenger side. It was clear that she had her hands somehow tied behind her back. They were also able to see the interactions between Samantha and her hooded masked killer. Between Samantha and her hooded masked kidnapper. While they were walking from the kiosk to the white truck, which was a significant distance away, they passed several people walking on the street. No one stopped, so they assumed Samantha either didn't try to get their attention or she was unsuccessful in doing so. At one point, when no one was around, the kidnapper seemed to get distracted by something on the ground, and he bent down. At this point, Samantha made a panicked run for it. Once the man realized she had been trying to run away, he chased after her and was able to quickly regain control of the situation. At this point, he was holding on to her even tighter. Finally, they reached the white pickup truck that had been parked in what was an IHOP parking lot. He put her in the passenger seat and got into the driver's seat. Still frames from the video of the truck, because it was pretty blurry, were sent to Quantico for analysis from the FBI. They were able to determine that the white pickup truck that they were looking for was a Chevrolet model truck from the years 1999 through 2007, based on the body type of the truck. So this was going to be really difficult because that's one of the most popular make, model, and color truck that they had in Alaska. There were thousands of trucks that they had to go through, but they did try. At this point, 
they were at a complete loss with the investigation because the look looking into the white Chevys in Alaska really like they yielded nothing from that. So they couldn't even tell for sure if the kidnapping was random or personal, um, whether it was done by a stranger or someone that Samantha knew or someone that was like stalking her. They had no idea. There was no evidence to go off of. That is until two and a half weeks into the investigation. Dwayne received another text message from Samantha's phone. That's pretty crazy. So two and a half weeks go by and another text comes in from Samantha's phone. I mean, that's insane. Because like normally it doesn't happen. You're not going to get a message from that person's phone. I mean, that's wild. And up until this point, Samantha's phone was dead. Like obviously people were calling it and texting it and um, it was going straight to voicemail. So that means someone had charged it and used it again. Right. Oh my God. So the text message read, Connor Park sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? What? Ominous words. The Anchorage Police Department knew what the text was talking about. Connor Park Lake was located about five miles southwest of downtown Anchorage. The investigators raced there, unsure of what would be waiting for them. On the bulletin board at the entrance of the park was a photo and a note placed right beneath a poster of a golden doodle. His name was Albert. In the picture, Samantha was clearly bound, but she was still alive. There was a male hand and a portion of his arm that was holding up a newspaper that had a recent date. Things were hard to see in the picture because it had been scanned, so it was pretty blurry. Obviously, this was intentional. The photograph was shown to James Koning, which I can only imagine was truly difficult to look at. He said, after staring at it for quite some time, that in fact that was his daughter. But he said what was interesting was that her hair was braided, and she never wore her hair in a braid. So investigators told him that they weren't too concerned about her hair because that could have been something that her kidnapper did or wanted her to do. They were really more concerned about whether or not it was her. Right. And imagine, like you said, how that must feel, but also to like have to like stare at this picture for all quite a while to figure out if that's your daughter or not. And that just shows that this person, whoever it is, kind of knows his shit because you have to think, I mean, like if you were to make, if you were to take a regular picture and it was clear as hell and you sent that in there, that means that he knows that an investigator will, will tear that picture apart as far as what's in it any clues to where they might be. Right. Things like that. That shows that this person is just super intelligent. Yeah, it is. It's pretty scary. Yeah. The ransom note requested that $30,000 be placed in a checking account that was shared between Samantha and Dwayne. And they had a shared checking account. It's a pretty serious relationship (laughs) for 18 years old. It's true. So he wanted $30,000 in that checking account And then he said if $30,000 was placed in the checking account, that he would release Samantha in six months. So this is interesting. In all of their years investigating kidnappings and going through ransom notes, never had investigators heard something like that. He was going to keep her for an additional six months? That made no sense. And it risked high detection. So it was then that the FBI agents recalled that they had a sinking feeling that they were going to be investigating a murder and not a kidnapping and ransom. Right. 
Like this guy's trying to buy time basically exactly. after he receives the money. Time to maybe go away. Go away, yeah. The plan that the FBI came up with was that some money should be put into the checking account. They did not want to anger him too much, so they wanted to put at least $6,000 inside. Now, they didn't want to give him the full amount because then he most likely would lose contact with them. But if you put a smaller amount of money in, but not too small, he's not going to be too angry, but it's also going to prompt more conversation. And that's what they wanted because that's how you catch someone via communication. So it took some convincing, which I think is a little strange here. James didn't want to put the money in the checking account, even $6,000. He kept saying, well, what if it's not Samantha? What if this is a lie? What if someone just made that picture? Like he was so stingy with the money. And the F- and this made Detective Dahl like scream at the FBI basically and say, he's showing you every signs that he Like, he's acting in the media like he gives a shit, but then he won't even give us $6,000 from the $40,000 that was raised. Right. It wasn't like it was coming from his personal account. Right. Which means, to me, that he already spent that $41,000. He spent a considerable amount of it. I mean, come on now. Yeah. And and that's probably why he can't come up or doesn't want to put the $6,000 in the account. Right. So, eventually, after a lot of convincing, James does put the money in the checking account. Now that the money was present, the FBI was going to sit back and wait because they put a tracking on the account number. So they made a deal with the bank that whenever the ATM card was used, associated with Samantha and Dwayne's account, an alert would immediately go to the Anchorage Police Department and the FBI. Okay, smart. So now they're basically just waiting. A few days after the first deposit, they have their first ATM withdrawal. For three consecutive days, there were $500 withdrawals, as this was the daily limit. These withdrawals took place in Anchorage, and by the time police got there, there was nobody in sight. Like, there was, there is a delay in the alert, so they just couldn't right. get there in time. But just as quickly as they begun, the withdrawals stopped. Until March 7th, when there was another withdrawal, and that's about a week and a half after the last one's. But this time, it didn't register as taking place in Alaska. Rather, the ATM withdrawal took place in Wilcox, Arizona. Okay, so he's on the move here. Really? That's, that's far. Yeah, pretty that's far. That's super far. <laughs> then the next day in Lordsburg, New Mexico. On March 10th, there was a withdrawal from Humble, Texas. And then another in Texas, but this time in the town of Shepherd. So it was clear that the kidnapper had traveled south into the lower 48, but now he was headed east. And it was determined by, like, the towns that he hit in Texas that he was traveling on one particular highway. So a bolo, or a be on the lookout, was placed for him. From what the FBI could see in the surveillance videos from the ATMs, um, the man was driving a small white sedan. After geometrically analyzing the windshields, they determined that it was a Ford Focus. This was another problem, because the Ford Focus was the most rented car in the United States, and again, the most popular color in in 2012. Yeah, this is interesting. So this is throwing them for a loop a little bit here, because not only only are, are there being ATM transactions in different states now, but you also have a different car to look for yeah 
So what did he do with the truck? You know what I'm saying? Like, like well, I would assume because now. he's in the lower 48 that he rented it. He must have. What do you? What's the? He must have flew. Flewed. I don't think it's flewed. <laughs> I, I think he. I don't know. Whatever. He took we, a flight. He, he took, took a, a flight. flight. He took a flight to but, the lower 48, and then he rented a car. Most likely is what happened. But then you have to think: How is he able to do all these things <laughs> with her? Sorry. Yeah. Well, is is Samantha with him? Well, there's she so has many to be. questions. Well, she would have to be, you know. Right. So in another ATM video, the man could be seen wearing white sneakers, and it could they could tell that he had medium length brown hair. It was also clear that the focus was headed east on one particular highway. So the be on the lookout was really directed towards patrolmen that were in that area of Texas specifically. So at this point, the Texas Rangers are going to take over. And that makes the Bolo be like top priority because the Texas Rangers basically reign over Texas. And they're pretty cool. (laughs) They're pretty cool. In the early morning hours of March 13th, a highway patrolman had spotted a white Ford Focus in the parking lot of a motel. When he called the license plate in, it came back as a rental car. So he called the Rangers and the man handling the case came out to meet him. The plan was to let it play out. Allow the driver of the car to come out, and as soon as he started driving, they were going to get behind him and pull him over for the first infraction that he made. And that's just what they did. Eventually, they watched a man, tall, with medium-length brown hair, wearing jeans and a gray tank top. He got into the Focus and began to drive. The patrolman followed him for a while, And the man was doing nothing wrong. He needed a reason to pull him over. So he was analyzing everything the driver was doing. And finally, the focus went two miles over the speed limit. And he turned those lights on. Hey, right? You got to do something. You got to get him, right? So when the patrolman pulled over 34-year-old Israel Keys, and Keys handed him the Alaska driver's license, he knew that they had found their man. Keyes was first asked to take the two knives that he visibly had on him off of his belt and to put them on the dashboard. He complied. At this point, Keyes was visibly sweating through his tank top, and the Texas Ranger allowed the patrolman, the one who spotted the car originally, to be the guy to make the arrest. Now that Keyes was in custody, his vehicle was allowed to be searched. Inside, they found countless Walmart bags with clothing that seemed to be purchased for himself and a young girl, along with cigars and two book bags. They also found clothing that matched what the person who was seen making the ATM withdrawals was wearing. In the trunk, various forms of pornography was found, including transgendered pornography. And lastly, and most importantly, was Samantha's phone and debit card okay so now they got Come on, everything that's, that's a smoking gun. everything keys at first denied the charges he said that right before he left for his trip to texas the reason for his visit to texas was the fact that his sister was getting married um he found a bag just left in his truck he said within the bag there was a phone and the card and he just assumed that it was left there by someone who still owed him money for a construction job that he had completed and they never paid him for. He said that stuff happened all the time in Alaska, so he just assumed that's what it was for, and he was making withdrawals from the card. 
I mean, that's that's still very bizarre. Yeah, it was, it's almost like you want to get caught at this point, right? Yeah. Like what? Like what? What? Is, that doesn't even make sense. <laughs> what would someone hand you over their plastic to make charges on? Very strange. What's he gonna do? I mean, really, what kind of? I mean, what are you gonna say? I mean, you could have said that you had a rental car and you found that in the trunk when you you know you, you didn't yep, know even... in the lower forty eight. I don't know. I don't know, but anything would have been better than yeah. Somebody owes me money, so they just gave me their credit card. Or their debit and card. someone's phone. Yeah, and someone's phone. Yeah, yeah. This is a well, you know collateral. Are and I'm texting me? the father weirdly, yeah. Yeah. the boyfriend weirdly. Come on, man. <laughs> so he's booked in Texas, and the FBI requests that no questioning take place until he's extradited back to Alaska. As soon as it's confirmed that Keys has been arrested for the kidnapping of Samantha Koning, the Anchorage Police Department and the FBI obtain a warrant for the residence of Israel Keys. First, they are shocked that Keyes lives within a very respectable neighborhood. They recall that the policeman had logged his truck as one of the white trucks that they had looked into during their investigation into what white Chevrolet could have been used, you know, from the surveillance video from the Home Depot. And the police officers actually ruled out Israel Keyes' truck because there was a rack on the back bed of the truck. So investigators assume that he must have removed it for the re- crime and placed it back on. Okay, right. That way they're not suspicious of that truck. Right. Wow. The property was a decent size, and the warrant included a search of the home and two sheds on the property. Also, for a seizure of any evidence that they may find, and it also included all electronics within the home. When they knocked on the door, they were met by a woman by the name of Kim Anderson. She was the girlfriend of their suspect. Anderson was shocked about the arrest, the warrant, and what her boyfriend was accused of doing. Anderson confirmed that she was a nurse at a nearby medical center. While the search was taking place, she was brought in for questioning. Um, it was also found out during the search that Israel Keys had a 10-year-old daughter. So the clothes for a young girl that were found within his car were for his daughter. That's crazy. That just so, answered that question. Right. But now you got to, th- like, this is insane now. Because now not only is he capable of the of this, but he is living in plain sight and has, like, a, I guess you call it a family. A normal life. Yeah, this is insane. His girlfriend's a nurse. He's got a kid. But you normally don't find that. Well, you do, I, well, actually. You, well, I guess. But, but it's such a, I guess you can call it a cover, right? Because yeah. it conceals what you're doing, which is kind of crazy. So... I know, it's getting more and more (laughs) interesting. I like it, though. This is crazy. So Anderson is going to state that it would have been impossible for Keyes to do everything that they were accusing him of doing because he had no time. In fact, the day after the kidnapping, the couple went on a cruise with his daughter. They had left out of New Orleans, and the cruise lasted two weeks. She did admit, however, that after the cruise, instead of returning to Alaska with Keyes and his daughter, that she went on a road trip with a friend and returned home a week after the ship returned to port. So Keyes basically returned to Alaska with his daughter, like alone, for a week. Anderson denied that anything was true, and she was quite angry. I mean, shocked, I would assume. I mean, yeah. I mean, you live in this life, you think everything's fantastic. Right. Hey, listen, you just went on a cruise. What the hell, right? Your whole life is just, like, weirdly uprooted because you didn't even think that this shit was happening. Yes. Like, this is crazy. It is insane. So now the perpetrator has been arrested. So, who is he? 
Investigators working out of the Anchorage Police Department and FBI pooled all of their resources to find out who they were going to be confronting once Keyes was extradited to Alaska. Israel Keyes was born in Kolb, Utah in 1978, the second of 10 children. His parents were deeply religious and isolated their children from any of the mainstream media or society. Their first move was to Colville, Washington, and this is where Key spent most of his childhood. The family lived in a house that could be compared to a cabin within the mountains of Stevens County. The Keyes family lived a life of isolation. The children were homeschooled and only knew of each other as playmates. Most of their day was reserved for prayer and physical chores. Now, socialization is a key component of child development, and this is something that the Keys children did not have access to. So I believe this created a very strong bond between the siblings. As later on in the interviews that would become famous, Keys is going to state that one of the conditions for him continuing to talk was that the FBI did not question or bother his siblings in any way. He didn't want them being brought into like his life or to be associated with him in any way. So that shows that he, despite everything that we will come to learn that he did, his soft spot was like his siblings were still in a soft spot in his psyche. Right. As you could say. I don't right. want to say he has a heart because. Well, it goes back to that. I guess you could say the strong bond that he had due to the fact that he didn't have any outside presence whatsoever. It was just them. Right. So I could, I right. could see how like in his own weird way, that's his way of protecting them, I guess. It's oh, just yeah. like, yeah. However, when it came to his mother, he told them that if his mother wanted to talk, let her. But if she stops, leave her alone. He had a desire to protect his siblings from his sinister world, but he didn't care in the slightest that his mother was exposed to it. Keyes will also go on to say that in no way was his childhood a factor in the development of his psychopathy. But we'll get into that because I think he's trying to make it sound that way. And whether he's aware of it or not, I think the way he grew up and his childhood has a lot to do with who he is and why he did what he did. Oh, 100%. But I also think he might be aware of that, but I think he wants to come off as a strong person and not seem weak in any way. Or he just may not think it does, but it but it truly does. Yeah. Eventually, the Keys family moved to northeastern Washington to join a religious community known as the Ark. Now, it was difficult to find a lot on this religious group, but what I found was that the group believed in a radical strain of Christianity known as Christian identity, but could also be associated with another radical religious belief known as British Israelism. British Israelism is the belief that Anglo-Saxons and other Northern European groups were the chosen people of the Bible and not the Jews. This translates as them being aggressively anti-Semitic and favoring white supremacy. The Ark, which is now called Our Place Fellowship, is registered by the Southern Poverty Law Center as a hate group, which they are. Their views are extreme, they're racist, and they are um, a group that really preaches an us-versus-them mentality, and they tie religion into it. Their operations are on a 20-acre farm where Keyes and his family lived in the early 1990s. 
The principles that Keyes was brought up on was, like I said, us versus the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, according to the Ark, would be judged for not only misrepresenting the Bible, but also their sins. Yeah, it's pretty radical. Like, it's it's actually really sad to see, like, when groups like this wrap religion into it because it's like a form of control and coercion. It's just like... It's like, no, you're just racist. Yeah, like, <laughs> come on, guys. It's That's crazy, though. So Keyes claimed that his parents were good people and that he was never abused or neglected anywhere he lived. However, we do know that there were disturbing incidents that occurred in his life while he was a teenager living with the Ark. He recalled that since the age of 14, he felt like he was different, like he had different thoughts and urges. So he believed that either everyone felt the way that he did and they were hiding it or that he was a monster. Now, this is a very interesting statement to me. We know that throughout history, whenever there's an extreme religious belief system that's established in a community or there's movements that take place, it has a negative effect on the developing sexuality of the children that grow up in those communities. So, and bear with me here because I'm going to give you a historical example. One of my favorites. (laughs) Um, In 1634, there was a very famous possession case, and there's been books, and there's like a really weird movie about it, but I'm going to give you the abridged version. This is referring to the nuns of Loudon in France. During their years of puberty, the girls who were studying to be nuns at a nunnery in Loudon were feeling a type of curiosity about, you know, their sexuality, their hitting puberty, and they're having desires that they didn't have previously. And of course, through what they were being taught to become nuns, this was a a negative, sinful thought. It was wrong. They shouldn't be thinking it. And they should repress those feelings, push them down deep inside. So those repressed feelings are going to come out through the young girls acting as if they were possessed. They truly believe that they were possessed by the devil. They in no way were faking this. Based on the things that these girls did on a platform in the center of town, this was not faked, okay? Like, really violent. It happened in The Exorcism, the movie The Exorcism, and was cut out, like, that kind of sick stuff. Yeah. So, these girls' feelings were coming out. They didn't even understand what they were, but it's because their feelings of sexual desire were repressed, and they were being told that they were wrong, they were sinful, they were the devil for wanting what is normal, So after a while, one tends to begin to believe that about themselves. So, and hear what I'm saying here, because I'm not saying that in any way Keyes didn't know what he was doing. It's just a weird um, and unfortunate melding of emotionalities that were converging within Keyes. So Keyes, whether he recognized it or not, was beginning to to develop sexual desires And he's told they were wrong and that they were sinful. So he's going to repress those feelings and associate them with sinful things that if if he ever acted on, he had to do in private. And now what is interesting with Keyes is that Keyes' sexual desires are bisexual in nature. He's attracted to both male and females. So growing up in an ultra-religious community where not only having sexual feelings is wrong but having bisexual feelings would he would be completely ostracized kicked out he would be made to feel like he was the devil if he felt that way 
right? So he is going through, whereas maybe the other teenagers around him were saying, oh, we feel this way, but we can't say it. And now this kid, Keys, is thinking, oh, well, I'm thinking this too, but no one else is saying that. Okay. So his feelings are super repressed within. And his feelings of sexual repression coupled with the fact that he took pleasure in perverse things are going to commingle here. So for example, once when he had cousins visiting, um, their family cat kept getting in the way. Guys, I'm really sorry about this story. It's going to be a little brutal here. Um, He is going to take the cat with a rope into the woods with his cousin and he tied the cat to a tree. He shot the cat in the stomach and in a panic, the cat began to run around the tree, tangling itself up and eventually crashing into the tree and dying. Keys is going to start laughing hysterically. And when he looks over to his cousin, he expected his cousin to be laughing as well. But the boy's actually throwing up and making his way back to the house. So in that moment, I feel like Keys realized, I think and feel different than other people. And just like that, he associated sexuality and violence. I have to repress my sexual feelings because other people don't feel the same way I do. And I have to repress my violence because other people don't feel the same way I do. And like that, his sexuality and violent tendencies become one. Wow. That's actually very interesting. I like that. Yeah. I'm all, I like how you're you know wording this because it makes sense. Yeah. It does. So these private feelings that he feels... They become repressed and he keeps it down further and further. And the reason why I do think that this is a really big deal and this moment's a turning point for Keys is because he is labeled as a psychopath by FBI profilers. And psychopaths do not feel a lack of emotion. Rather, their emotions are so repressed deep within them that they need to commit these extreme acts for the emotions to come out. And over time, that's why psychopathic killers escalate because they need more and more violent and extreme things for the emotions to come out, right? They need a stronger and stronger high. And that's exactly what Keyes has. He has repressed sexual and violent feelings from his childhood. Right, so like they need a way of releasing escape. Or, or escape. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. Actually, I feel like now I understand it more. I mean, because like I mean, I, I mean, I get it, but when you put it that way, it makes sense. Yeah, right. Uh, it, it makes sense for crazy. somebody to continue to do these type of acts because of all of their sexual desires and their you know violent tendencies. It's kind of right. crazy. It's a possible why. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. So in that moment when he realized that he was in so many ways so different from the others around him, he began isolating himself more and more. And even from his siblings, he began to do everything alone. He also began committing crimes. What he loved to do most in his late teens was break into homes and steal guns. Eventually, his parents found the guns. But when they confronted him, they found out something even more horrifying than the fact that their son was committing felony robberies. He was an atheist. <laughs> oh, that's worse. <laughs> yeah, that's what, to I, them. To them. So this announcement was the worst thing that he could have said to his ultra-religious, unforgiving parents. And his father kicked him out of the house. I mean, yeah, I mean, I can't, I can't see you keeping somebody like that in the house if that's how you are. 
you know, like right. you're super religious. You don't want that to spread to your other kids. It's uh, a poison. Know, that's how they would look at it. Yeah, absolutely. As a poison. So Keyes then joined the United States Army. He served from 1998 to 2001, where he rose to the rank of specialist while serving as a part of the 25th Infantry Division. He had been stationed in Fort Hood in Texas, in Egypt, and finally in Fort Lewis, which was located in Washington State. Those that stayed in the barracks with him said that he was very quiet and he kept to himself. He was also very into the band Insane Clown Posse, so uh, take from that what you will. (laughs) He was also a heavy drinker. When they would have time off, Keyes would spend most of his time drinking entire bottles of wild turkey. Once he was honorably discharged from the army, Keyes moved to Nea Bay in Washington, which is part of the Maka Reservation on the Olympic Peninsula. It's really like the most northwestern you can get in the state of Washington, basically. A year later, Keyes became involved in a relationship with a woman with whom he had a child, a daughter. The couple lived together with their child for about five years. During that time, Keyes worked as a contractor, and he was a very talented carpenter and construction worker. He stayed in that situation until around 2007, when he realized that his girlfriend's alcoholism was beginning to affect their daughter, so he fought for sole custody and won. And he chose to, in 2007, move to Anchorage, Alaska, to start over. And it is there that he continued his work as a contractor, creating the business Keys Construction. I just want to um, just interrupt here for a second. You know what I realized? I think that what you were talking about with his childhood even, even further, think about this, right? He was isolated as a child. He went into the military, was in bases, where it's kind of isolated from most people just the people that, you know, obviously are in the military. Then he chooses to be at the western end of of a state. Then he chooses to be in Alaska, the last frontier where it's super isolated. Yeah, he I likes mean, Anchorage isolation. Is a, I mean, Anchorage is a big uh, a big city for that area, I'm sure, but it's still off the beaten path type of deal. So he really has felt that way his whole life and I like that's so interesting that he chooses to live there. Yeah, he does choose to self-isolate, but he also, and he will explain later in his interviews, that he gets very bored. So he cannot stay somewhere for more than five years, is what he says. That's interesting. And it's interesting because 2012 puts us at five years. Yeah. Wow. So that brings us up to speed with how he grew up and how he ended up in Alaska. So now once he's returned to Alaska from Texas, there are a lot of people chomping at the bit to talk to him. This is one of those cases that can make someone's career. So to some degree, people wanted to talk to him for self-serving reasons. And others wanted to be the one to talk to him because they were the professionals. Up to this point, no one has any clue what they are walking into. Because, think about this. I mean, we're obviously talking about this case knowing who Israel Keys is. They don't. They think this man is right now only responsible for the kidnapping of Samantha Koning. They have no idea that's just the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, that's true. So one of the books I read about Keys was Maureen Callahan's American Predator. And I have to say that it's one of the best books I found out there on him because the research is just so incredible. But it's mainly procedural and it puts a big emphasis on the investigators of the case 
and what they are thinking throughout this whole interview process of keys. The research level, like I said, is incredible, and really anyone can watch the interview tapes. They're long, they're infuriating, and they're nauseating. But what Callahan's book does is it brings you into the mind of the investigators during the discussions, so it explains a lot that you really wouldn't understand just watching it as someone who's, you know, not an FBI profiler. You know what I mean? Oh, no, totally. So before we get into Key's revealing through his interview what happened to Samantha, you have to understand the dynamic that was happening in the room. So the main players, of course, are Israel Keyes himself. And then there was Officer Jeff Bell. So he was representing the Anchorage Police Department. If you remember, the original detectives on the case for Samantha were Officer Jeff Bell and then Detective Dahl. So Bell's going to be the one who's going to sit in through um, the interrogation, basically tapes. Another person that had been involved in the investigation from the beginning was Special Agent Jolene Godin, who was a representative from the FBI. Also present in the interrogation room was Kevin Feldes, the assistant U.S. attorney, and Frank Russo, another assistant attorney. Russo, though, was working under Feldes, who had lead in the pro- as prosecutor in the case. Now, from the beginning, and this is the complicated dynamic between the investigators, Bell was furious that Feldis and Russo were going to be present. Over time, he's more mad at Feldis. Russo's kind of laid back, and he's actually really good in the interrogation room. But his biggest issue is with Feldis. He claimed the man was trying to take over the investigation, not knowing any interrogation tactics. So he was feeling like he's going to screw this up for us. And Godin agreed that Feldis had no training whatsoever, so... So this guy should not be leading the questioning at all. And they both even brought up the fact that Feldis being there could hinder the prosecution of Keyes in the future. Because there's a lot of legal ramifications, like Feldis as being the prosecuting attorney, if he heard certain things, like Keyes referring to a conversation that went down between him and his lawyer, Feldis isn't allowed to hear that. So usually when prosecutors are given tape or like the transcripts of the tapes, that stuff is redacted. But he's going to be sitting there. Right. So, I mean, this is kind of like a conflict of interest kind of thing. A hundred percent. Yeah, he shouldn't be there. <laughs> but really, Feldes is there because he thinks, oh my God, it's going to make my career. Of course. And once again, it's all about, sometimes it's about people's agendas and what they want yes. to gain from it, not seeking justice and getting the right intel from somebody. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So the first interview with Keyes was not successful. His lawyer was present and he did not say a word. The investigators and attorneys in the room were fascinated looking on at Israel Keyes. He looked like a completely normal guy. He had no priors, which was really unusual because offenders that committed crimes like kidnapping and holding someone for ransom, they usually had past offenses, but not him, spotless. So that made it clear that they were interested in listening to what he had to say. They had been holding on to hope at this point that Samantha Koning was still alive and waiting to be rescued. But Keyes gave them nothing. After leaving the interview room frustrated, they received a phone call from Keyes' public defender hours later. He stated that his client did want to tell him what they wanted to hear, but he had some demands. So they agreed to meet with Keyes once again. Once in the room, Keyes requested three things, a cigar, a peanut butter Snickers bar, and an Americano coffee, the same drink that he ordered from Samantha Koning. 
It's not so. Yeah, it's almost like rubbing it in their face. Right. Well, they don't know at yeah. that point that that's the drink he ordered. Like that's his like go to drink. But like, oh, what a dick. Right. It's that's so insane, actually. <laughs> but like, he wants to have like a like a good time telling a story with his cigar and his coffee. Oh yeah, he's reliving this. Yeah. This is causing him. Not causing him. This is giving him sexual gratification, like the retelling of all of this. Yeah. He loves it. So Keyes told them that he had additional demands. He did not want his name released any further to the media because he claimed he wanted to protect his daughter. He did not, you know who James Koning probably wanted to like protect his daughter too, I would say. Yeah. Maybe just a little bit. So he said he didn't want her growing up having to hear about this and that she should have a fair shot at life. And like I said before, he also said that he didn't want his siblings being interviewed. His mother he was okay with, but his siblings, he wanted the FBI to leave alone. So they agreed to everything that they could get him right away and that his siblings would be left alone. They promised that they would not make any public statements using his name and they would tell the media to do the same. Keyes had been aware that his arrest had made the news, but since then, things had quieted down and his name really hadn't been repeated. Like, the arrest in Texas really didn't get to Alaska. So the investigators and Feldis laid out the evidence for him. Like, this is basically, this is what we did. They had searched his shed. Now, the FBI and the Anchorage Police Department actually searched the shed in which had nothing in it. So they searched the wrong shed. So when they tell Keys, oh, we searched your shed, he's assuming they searched the one he didn't want them to search. So it's oh, actually wow. a miscommunication here when he says, we searched your shed. They said, we have your computer and your girlfriend's computer. He also said he wanted Kim Anderson to be left alone, his girlfriend, that she didn't have anything to do with it. But he said that's something they would figure out through their investigation. But he did tell them she was not involved. And on his computer, they found several pictures of Samantha and that he had Googled her name many times after the kidnapping. And they had surveillance video of the kidnapping as well as the phone and debit card being found in his car. I mean, this is a lot of evidence they have against him, albeit circumstantial, but it's it's evidence. Oh, yeah. I mean, everything in that trunk. I mean, there's no way you can get away with that. Right. So Keyes made it very clear that any information he was going to give would be information that he knew they had on him anyway. So he kept saying, I know you will connect the dots, so let, so I will let you know what happened. But he made it clear that there were certain details that he wanted to leave for himself, most likely for his fantasies. He asked them if they had found the sled and the bags yet. So here he was referring to the shed that he had in front of his house and not the one in the back of his house that the investigators had actually searched and torn apart, basically. He had no clue that they had not searched the one that he was referring to having the shed and bags in. So essentially at this point, Keyes is giving away information that the investigators did not know. Wow, so just putting himself deeper and he doesn't even know it. Like, I guess what he's saying is eventually you're going to search that shed. They just hadn't done it yet. I mean, I guess he knows he's not getting away with this at this yeah. point. I mean, come on. I mean, I guess he knows that. I think he's just playing a game at this point. Oh, yeah, because it's it's entertainment for him. Right, and he's out of his prison cell, so he's just yes. enjoying this. And he's getting a lot of things. Right. So when they ask him what the sled was used for, he told them that he guessed he would start at the end. He said that it had taken him three days 
but he'd carried the bags onto the frozen lake with the sled from the shed, and he had, piece by piece, disposed of Samantha Koning's body. Wow. So he actually cut up her body? Yeah. Yeah. The silence in the room was palpable. The investigators and even the attorney knew that they couldn't react. Right in an interrogation room, they tried to give Feldus the quickest, like lowdown on what to do while in, t- in interrogation, especially with a killer. Um, they needed to create an environment in which Keys felt like he could say whatever he wanted without fear of being judged. So they can't react to this, but I mean, they probably all felt like crumbling after months of believing that Samantha was going to be okay, even though they felt when they got that ransom note, like, hey, there's something up here, you still have hope, right? You do. And now, like, boom, he just said it, and it well, he crushed also crea- them. Well, he also created that narrative as well, that oh, yeah. she was still alive. A hundred percent. So they know now that Samantha was dismembered and that she was at the bottom of a lake somewhere. That's incredible. So they, so they asked Keys to give them details. What happened to Samantha? What happened that night? What did he do to her? Where did he dispose of her body? And Keyes made it clear that he only wanted to tell those details to the detective that had originally booked him. Now, he was referring to Detective Dahl, the beautiful detective that was originally assigned to Samantha's case originally with Detective Bell. They knew that this would give him sexual gratification, telling the lurid details of his crime to an attractive female detective, but they needed the details. And you know what? Interrogation 101 is you got to do what you got to do, you know? Right. So they, and Dahl was all, she wanted to, she said, let's get these answers. And that's smart. I mean, you got to sometimes put all, some things aside just to get to the nitty gritty of what's going on here. Yeah. We want to know the details. So, and because the family needs closure. Absolutely. So days later, Keyes had another request before he left. He wanted to have the New York Times delivered to his cell each morning. Wanting to get the man talking, they again agreed to his demand. Days later, Keyes was escorted into a large interrogation room with Godin, Bell, Dahl, Feldis, and Roussel. Keyes seemed annoyed that they were all present. It was clear that he wanted to tell the details of what happened to Samantha to Dahl and Dahl alone. He kept telling them that he would not be telling them every detail of what happened because there were so many people present and the details were personal. Eventually, though, with an Americano in hand, he began telling the story about what had happened to Samantha Koning and how he got to Texas, where he was eventually arrested. So I just want to warn you that the details of the crime... And later on, the others that he committed are heinous and they're hard to get through. But like always, these victims deserve to have their entire stories told. And Keyes needs to be remembered as the monster that committed those crimes. So we will go into detail. The details come out over a series of interviews. So I don't want to mislead you into thinking that this is all one coherent story that he told. Um, He gave these details sporadically and not in chronological order. So what I'm doing for you now is just putting them in chronological order, like one continuous story here. Keyes told investigators that he was the kind of person that got bored very easily and he needed to move frequently to keep his interests piqued. He had felt that for a while, his relationship with his girlfriend was not working out. He liked staying to himself and she had never warmed to his daughter. 
He had been depressed for a short time about their relationship ending, and he drank more than he usually did. This is something that was later confirmed by one of the families that Keyes worked for. One woman, who was fond of the quick and precise work that he did as a contractor, um, hired him for several projects on her property. She said he would come to the job site and he was always very efficient. One day, he stopped showing up. So she went to his house to check on him and he answered the door and he was clearly drunk. He blamed it on the Alaskan winters getting him down. But in reality, it had been that he was upset about the ending of his relationship with his girlfriend. So after a few weeks, he pulled himself out of those feelings and he got the idea that he would commit a crime in Alaska and then leave with his daughter to start over again in the lower 48. So this was basically his last hurrah is what he told investigators. Keyes swore that he did not pick Samantha to be the victim, that it was random. Now, I I just don't know if I believe 100% that it was random, only because Keyes is obviously obsessed with these Americano coffees, right? And this is the kiosk that's across from the Home Depot, and he's a contractor. So I think it's a little naive to think that Keyes and Samantha did not cross paths before. Well, probably, I mean... Probably. But I think at the end of the day, he would have taken any girl that was in that kiosk at night. Yeah, I mean, I agree because, I mean, it's also, I mean, is it maybe because at this point it's just convenient? A hundred percent. I mean, he knows that area well. He's there all the time. I mean. He knows they were open late. Yeah. So he chose to take a girl from one of the coffee kiosks because they were open late and he knew the girls often closed up by themselves. And that's not just her coffee kiosk. That's all of them. So the way these kiosks were run changed a little bit after this. Yeah. Luckily. He said that he had removed the rack from the back of his truck and parked it in the IHOP parking lot, two lots away from where the kiosk was. He waited a while and then placed a ski mask over his face. Now, this isn't something that's too uncommon to see in Alaska, so he didn't look out of place. And he ordered an Americano. When he got to the kiosk, he noticed that Samantha was by herself, but he also noticed that there was an idling car nearby, a man sitting in the driver's seat. He at first thought that he would not be able to finish what he had gone there to do, but the man left, and that is when Keyes went through precisely what the detectives and the special agents had already seen in the surveillance tape. He first asked Samantha to give him money, and then once he climbed through the window, He threw her completely off guard, and he was able to overpower her, hold her hands behind her back, and put zip ties on her wrist. Keyes then walked her out of the kiosk towards his truck. He confirmed that he got a little distracted because he saw a brand new camera that someone had left on the ground. So he bent down to pick it up, and that's when Samantha had made a run for it. He caught up to her quickly and held her tight into him. He told her to act like she was drunk and to lean on him or that he would kill her. She complied. He told the investigators that he had been nervous because they passed several people while walking, but Samantha did not do anything to try and get their attention. Finally, they reached his truck in the IHOP parking lot, and he went to let her in the passenger side door. There were a group of people hanging out by their cars in the parking lot. Now, I'm sure Samantha thought, they would notice what was happening, but they didn't. And Keyes said that he felt relieved that they didn't. And he put his seatbelt on and he got in and just started driving. 
As they were driving, he asked her if she had any money on her or a debit card, and she said she didn't. He told her that he needed her to relax because he didn't want to harm her. He was only holding her for ransom, and then he would let her go. So this is a tactic that's used to relax the victims. Like, I'll be okay if I just calm down and I, and I comply, basically. Right, right. Samantha told him that her family did not have any money, and he replied that it didn't matter. It was the police and the FBI that helped with that stuff. Then she told Keyes that because she did not drive to work, she didn't have her license or ATM card with her. That was kept in the truck that she shared with her boyfriend. He asked her where it was and where it was parked, and she told him that most likely it was parked at her house. He asked for the address, and she gave it to him. She told him that it usually was in the visor on the driver's side. As they continued to drive, Samantha kept trying to talk to him. It was brave of her, he said, but he had told her to shut up. At a traffic light, they pulled up next to two police officers from the Anchorage Police Department. He told her that if she did anything, that he would kill her. Keyes said he had been shocked to see the police officers. He had chosen that night because there was a festival occurring across town, and he assumed that all on-duty officers would be there for crowd control. Samantha had been too terrified and never tried to get the officer's attention. And she still believed that she was just there for ransom. So she's probably so nervous. Next, Samantha told him that she needed to use the bathroom. Keyes said that he didn't want to stop, but he couldn't risk her urinating in the car and leaving her DNA. So he pulled over near a park area and he allowed her to go to the bathroom. While there, she did not try to run away. There, Keyes smoked a cigar and told Samantha to take puffs from the cigar as well. In this whole situation, she was really brave. She stayed calm and she was from what I believe, trying to make her captor feel at ease, but also trying to build a rapport with him, which is what they tell you to do in these situations. Right, exactly. So once Keys was done, Samantha was placed back in the truck. From this point on, she was blindfolded. Keys then drove to his house, where he told Samantha that she needed to lay down in the truck and not get up again until he told her to. She agreed. Keyes went into the shed where he made sure all of the preparations that he had already made inside were still there and ready to go. He went into the house and realized his daughter was sleeping, but his girlfriend was about to go to bed. So that was why he didn't directly bring her into the shed. He was waiting to make sure that Kim Anderson was sleeping. The coast was clear. Yeah. At that point, the couple was trying to rekindle things by going on this cruise out of New Orleans, but they were at this point sleeping in separate bedrooms. Keyes, though, had already made up his mind, and that's why he was doing what he was doing with Samantha. He got a water bottle and a glass of wine and said he was headed out to work in the shed. So this wasn't unusual. This was something he did a lot working at night. So once everything was in the shed, he got Samantha out and did not take her blindfold off until she was within the shed. He allowed her to use the bathroom in a five-gallon Home Depot bucket, and then he tossed what was in the bucket outside, and he turned the pail upside down so she could sit on it. At this point, he put tape over her mouth and took the zip ties off and used ropes instead, so she was a little bit more secure in how she was tied up. He told her that if she screamed, no one would hear her, so she was better off cooperating. As of right now, he had had no reason to hurt her, But if she gave him a reason, he wouldn't be happy. 
Keyes left Samantha in the shed. He had two destinations, the coffee kiosk again and Samantha's house. He went to the kiosk and locked the door of the business using the keys that he had taken off the girl. He then used her phone to text her boss and Duane. In both messages, he tried to sound angry and give them the impression that Samantha did not want to see anyone for a few days. Next, he drove to her house. She had been right. The truck was parked exactly where she said it would be. He went inside it and took her license and debit card from the visor on the driver's side seat. Hold on a minute. Wait. So, that person that was hooded was him? Yes. Oh my God. So they were literally within, within feet of one another. Yep. He said that as he was closing the truck door, that a person, obviously we know it was Dwayne, came out of the house, but he was able to get away and hide in bushes. And Dwayne just went right back inside. So he actually went there. That's insane. That was him. See, but like, to me, that's like such thrill seeking. Like, that's like. He needs it. He needs it. Because. Why would you do that? Why would you threaten everything you have? Like, you've already gotten this far already. You've already done some really bad shit, right? Yes. Why would you go to the person's house to grab a debit card and license? Well, we will learn later. I mean, Keyes keeps telling investigators he doesn't do it for the money. He doesn't do it for the money. But he was in a little bit of a financial situation here where money was strained. And it was expensive to go on that cruise. I mean, yeah. obviously, he did it for several reasons. I don't know if it was whether to rekindle his romance with Kim Anderson or it was to create an alibi or let him, you know, blow off more steam. I, it th- I think it's safe to say that anything to do with, um, you know, whether it be like, you know, his crime or anything, right? Everything that's done is done to protect what he already has done. Has done. Yeah. He's calculating. Yeah, 100%. So when he returned to the shed, Samantha was in the same position that he left her in. He had turned the music on loud, which was not unusual for when he was working at night. He lit a cigar and began drinking his wine. This is when he sexually assaulted Samantha, twice, using a condom. He refused to go into further detail than that, except for the fact that he made sure that it lasted a while, he said. Then wearing leather batting gloves, he strangled her. Once she stopped breathing to confirm that she was dead, he stabbed her in the chest. He wrapped her body and then placed it in a large box. He turned off the heater that was in the shed. He knew that her body would freeze in the shed, so he didn't have to worry about blood flow or decomposition. Then he went into his house, climbed into bed, and slept. The next morning, he, his girlfriend, and his 10-year-old daughter left on a flight that would bring them through various connections to New Orleans. From there, they set sail on a beautiful two-week cruise as Samantha's body was left freezing in a shed located in front of their house for everyone to see. She was hidden in plain sight the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think everything he's done, he's done it to really cover his tracks, everything. And think about his switching of, of personalities, of being able to do what he did such a heinous crime, and then go on a two-week cruise. Yeah, I really think he's able to turn it on and turn it off. Yep. Right? Wouldn't you think that? Like, yeah. I think he's able to turn it on and turn it off at will. You know, and when, you know, that way he can, I guess, his form of fun, I don't even know. His sexual gratification, I don't even know. It's so insane. 
It is crazy. And that is, guys, where we are going to leave off for part one of the episodes on Israel Keys. It is so crazy. And what the FBI is going to learn in our next part is just that the crimes that were committed to Samantha Koning was just the tip of the iceberg. They're going to learn what happened to Samantha's body and the fact that he may have seven other victims out there. Yeah. And just what he did to kind of like solidify himself as one of the most probably prolific serial killers of our time and a guy who learned from the serial killers of the past, which is terrifying. And rare. Yeah. So we're going to bring that to you. That's going to be available next weekend for the $5 and up subscribers. So um, we hope you'll enjoy that because there'll be a regular episode, like episode 82, that's going to be released on the mainstream. And then you guys are going to get another episode next week. And then the week after that, boom, Patreon episode for everybody. Yep. We're just releasing them like crazy. (laughs) All right, guys, um, thank you for joining us. This one is a crazy one, and part two will be out next week. Uh, See you later. Bye, guys. Bye. Before we do get into this, I know we kind of gave a little bit of a disclosure in the first part of the Israel Keys series. Um, There's going to be a lot of graphic content in here, so if that's something you're not into hearing, I'll give a quick little, it's coming, and you could fast forward if you don't want to hear it but i mean it does get a little bit more graphic as it's we true. continue on i truly believe that everyone in this uh, for patreon they're here they're ready to listen they're ready for it <laughs> yes i feel like if you are a patreon of a true crime podcast you most likely they can the, handle it the details don't that's what i'm yet. trying to say here i don't even right. know what i'm saying i'm still having like ptsd it's okay painting flashbacks <laughs> Okay, so we're going to jump right back into the story of Israel Keys. Where we left off, Keys had just murdered 18-year-old Samantha Koning and left for a cruise with his girlfriend and 10-year-old daughter. I mean, that's an outrageous sentence to say, but it happened. He returned to Alaska 15 days after his departure, and that really answers some questions for us. Investigators were puzzled by the fact that a text message came in from Samantha's phone after radio silence for two and a half weeks. And I'm referring to the text message that told Samantha's boyfriend, father, and investigators where to find that picture and ransom note. Investigators and prosecutors were eager to learn what had really happened with the ransom note. Keyes said that when he returned, he was only with his daughter as his girlfriend went on a road trip and would be returning in one week's time. And he said the first thing that he did was turn on the space heater in the shed where he was keeping Samantha's body as when he was away, her body had frozen because of the Alaskan temperatures. So he thawed her body while he unpacked and helped his daughter unpack. Later in the night, once Samantha's body had thawed, he sexually violated Samantha's corpse several times. And in doing that, he told investigators that he was so distracted by what he was doing that he had lost track of time. And before he knew it, his daughter was knocking on the door of the shed telling him that it was time for her to start getting ready for bed. Okay, so he obviously spent a lot of time. What a friggin' scene. Yeah, I mean, what the hell? I mean... So he said he didn't realize that hours had passed, so that's... Wow. Um, I think I'm just more know, disturbed. Take that scene. Yeah, 
I think I'm just disturbed with the fact that he decided to like that's what he did. He did like defrosted the body and then did that. Yes. So it's just like really weird. I mean, I mean, we already know the well, guy's yes, weird, but he's weird. I mean, this is just over the top. Like every time I think it's gonna get worse, or I can't think it can get any worse, it does. Oh, totally. So I'm a little weird and, out right now. <laughs> I mean, I when Keys was talking to investigators about this, this was definitely something that threw him off as well. Because we know, based on what he said already, that he wants to separate his daughter from what he does. And this was the closest that she had ever come to kind of discovering who the monster her father was. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. The next day, Keyes went to a Target to buy a Polaroid camera and take pictures of Samantha to use proof of life for the ransom note. He told them that he was annoyed because he had to go to another Target to pick up the film for the camera, as the nearest one to him had a camera but not the film available. When he returned home, he used his girlfriend's makeup that she had left in the house to make Samantha look more alive. He told the investigators that no matter what he did, she still looked like she was dead because her skin was drooping. He equated it to someone that had had a stroke. So he used a thread and needle to make it look like her skin was tight and that her eyes were finally open. It's so disturbing because, I mean, what kind of, look at the length you're going to to do this. It's like he's trying to make her like alive like. It's just so weird. Well, I think he's really trying to cover his tracks. And what investigators find out at this point is that. In reality, Israel Keys is having a little bit of financial issues. He and Kim were kind of breaking up, so like he wasn't working as much. Um, also, he just went on a really expensive vacation, so he's got to pay for that stuff. So the ransom was pretty important to him at this time, getting more money. Right, he needed money. And he knew that there was a reward fund available, so it's like... Might as well take it, right? Yeah. Right. It is, it's so disturbing that he literally is sewing her face up and putting makeup on her to make her look alive it's very silence of the lambs i mean at this point right with what we know so far Mm -hmm. do you think there's i I think this guy's capable of just about anything yeah i think he can do a really good job of separating himself emotionally from what's taking place right i wouldn't throw anything past him no so finally he braided her hair the same way that he braided his daughter's hair for school. And that's why Samantha's hair was braided in the picture. Right, and the father said he, that she didn't do her hair like that. Right, right. Okay, makes sense. So then he held up a newspaper that read the date and took a picture with the Polaroid camera. Once he was happy with the Polaroid, he cut out as much of his arm as he could. He told them that it was because he had distinctive moles on his forearm and he was paranoid about being caught. To further make the picture blurry, he chose to scan the picture so details would be difficult to make out. So, I mean, obviously, if you've taken a Polaroid, you know that the details aren't vivid. So to scan a Polaroid, that's why it was more believable that Samantha was alive. Absolutely. And by scanning it, you kind of, you don't really, level not to mention. There's no way to trace it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Sorry that I stole your thunder. It's okay. I knew where you were going with it. <laughs> <laughs> he wrote the ransom note and placed both picture and note in a plastic bag. He had done everything wearing gloves so that nothing would be traced back to him. 
Then he put the battery pack back in Samantha's phone and sent the taunting text to Dwayne. Over the next few days, while the FBI and the Anchorage Police Department were trying to convince James Koning to put the portioned amount of the reward money in the checking account, Keyes said that he worked to dismember Samantha's body. He remarked on how difficult of a task it was. And once he was done, he kept the pieces of her body frozen in the shed until his girlfriend returned. Once she did and could watch his daughter, he headed out to Lake Matanuska. He had been told that it was really deep and that it was used for ice fishing. The disposing of Samantha's body would take three days. The first day, he went out to the lake and he manually cut a hole in the deep ice that covered the Alaskan lake. Keyes mentioned that there was another man on the lake with him and he had been giving him strange looks as... Keys was struggling with manually cutting the fishing hole. The stranger had an electric saw, which could have easily cut the hole, but Keys was avoiding making eye contact with him because he didn't want to have to speak with the man, and he knew that the man was going to like offer him the electric saw, so it was kind right. of just like an awkward exchange between the two men. Yeah, and then you also don't want anybody coming closer because of what you're doing, <laughs> obviously. Exactly. Once he finally finished with the hole, he went back to his truck and carried a large sled across the ice. To anyone observing it, it would have looked like he was just towing his gear and provisions onto the ice with him. But it wasn't. In the bags on his sled were the pieces of Samantha's body. He dropped them one by one into the lake, unwrapped. He said he did it that way so the wildlife could get to it faster. After the first day of dumping Samantha's body parts in the lake, Keyes cleaned himself up and attended a parent-teacher conference with his daughter's teacher, who had just recommended that she join the school's gifted and talented program. See how we can just turn it off and on? And it's like, yeah, I just... Yeah, I think that's actually what is remarkable and what's just so scary is that he can do that. He could just flip it on and flip it off whenever he wants. But it seems to me that like he still needs it though. Like there's not he can't live his life without doing this. You know what I mean? To you know, it's just that's to me that's the scariest thing. And I don't think it gets scarier than that is how someone can live such a normal life yet do the things he's doing. I completely agree with you. And this is kind of like something that we see with serial killers, especially ones that have been successful for longer amounts of time, is just the way that they can completely compartmentalize the horrific things they're doing and then the normal things that they're doing. So the investigators made Keyes show them on a Google map image of the lake where he thought that he had cut the hole. And he circled a spot for them. He knew it was there because that was where the lake was at its deepest, and that's where he made sure to um, cut the hole for dropping the body parts. The next day, the FBI got a dive team out to Alaska for a recovery on Matanuska Lake. It was April 2nd, 2012, when the team found the remnants of an old fishing hole and broke through the ice a second time. They sent a robot down to the bottom of the lake, which is about 80 feet deep. The experienced team found something, and then they sent two men down. They confirmed that they had found human remains under the water. They were able to retrieve all of Samantha, 
While this was taking place, the Anchorage Police Department worked as hard as they could to set up tents and shield the remains from the views of the media, which were circling in helicopters. The FBI and Anchorage Police Department went to the home of James Koning and Duane to let them know that they had found Samantha's remains. They did tell him who was responsible and what had taken place. However, they told the two men to keep very quiet about everything as they were still investigating Keyes and they believed that he had a lot more to say but didn't want to talk if his name was too much in the media. And I have to say here that James Koning and Dwayne were unbelievably cooperative when they didn't have to be. What happened to Samantha was horrific. What happened to her when she was alive and when she was dead. I mean, he humiliated her. So for the fact that her father and her boyfriend cooperated, didn't speak about him, and really when the FBI and police department asked them, hey, don't like really call attention to yourself with this. And I just feel like they could have, because they were most likely so angry, because right, anyone would be if that happened to your loved one, your daughter, your girlfriend. But they were so helpful to law enforcement. Yeah, also on top of that, being accused as well. (laughs) Right, no, because they were suspects. They I mean, were totally I mean, suspect. I don't forget part one and what I said about the father. I'm not forgetting what I said, but it is true though. Now that we know <laughs> what was going on, right? Um, I mean, it's it's kind of like you know, it's a little eye opening now to the point where, well, not only was this happening, but you also were falsely accusing them, kind of. Right. I mean, so he was acting like... suspicious because of his grow operation. Now right. it makes sense, <laughs> but I just have to commend them on that because they did a really stand up job of. Not only thinking of themselves, but thinking of the other victims that this man may have. Yeah, and the memory of their daughter slash girlfriend, you know? Right, so. right. So finding Samantha's body meant first that Keyes was a dangerous man. Investigators found it bone chilling the way that Keyes spoke of what he did to the 18-year-old girl. At first, he had shown no emotions. It was like a walk in the park for him. They could detect that he was very proud of himself and the work that he had done. He was obsessed with the fact that he never left forensic evidence. And he, he kept repeating that. You'll never find anything. You'll never find anything. So that was his, you know, point of pride, I guess you could say. Right. That he was good at that. <laughs> right. He did, however, change when he was describing the sexual abuse. The special agent with the FBI, Jolene Godin, explained that while he was describing the sexual attacks and um, the acts of necrophilia, he would get jittery. He would shake his leg and he actually had been, um, I guess you could say, scratching the chair that he was on. And he actually had scraped part of the wood off the chair. He was like scratching it so much. That's so bizarre. Uh, Yeah, but... They were saying that, like, him doing this was a substitution for masturbation because he's getting off on not only remembering what he did, but sickening them with the details. Oh, wow. Okay. That's what you're saying. That's crazy. Disgusting. So that will continue throughout all of his interviews. Once Keyes had finished telling the story of what happened to Samantha, he began alluding to the fact that he had more to tell and he had committed more crimes. 
And it's for this reason, coupled with the fact that the analysts at Quantico had found over 40 images of people, along with photos of Samantha, on Keyes' computer, that the investigators and prosecutors wanted to continue speaking with him. Because they're figuring if these pictures were found with Samantha's, are there 40 other people out there? Like, the possibility seemed endless in the fact that he was so callous in his interactions with Oh, yeah, 100%. So shortly after the discovery of Samantha's body, Keyes is going to fire his public defender. Wow, that's uh, interesting. Okay. The next time he's brought in for an interview, they had asked Keyes why he had done that. And he had told them that he had a lot more to tell them. After all, he said, he had been two people for going on 14 years now. However, he had some more demands. He wanted an execution date. He did not want to spend the rest of his life in prison. He also didn't want to remain alive because he knew if he was sitting in jail that every time the anniversary of the crime came up or the FBI wanted to look into something that his daughter would be the one that would be dragged into the limelight once again. So he just wanted to end it all. He wanted it to be done fast within the year. Now it all made sense to everyone why he fired his public defender. The man was a very anti-death penalty lawyer, and he did not want, like, he kept pressing Keyes to fight the death penalty. Keyes wanted to die. Like, it was quite the opposite, so they didn't have the same end goal in mind. Okay. Um, So they told Keyes that he had one problem when it came to his request. The state of Alaska does not have the death penalty. So in order to receive a sentence like that, his crime would have to be federal or committed in another state. So Keyes told them that he had something to give them, but he needed them to promise that they would try to get the ball rolling on the execution date. So (laughs) do you think it's safe to say that he's probably the only murderer or just any person that's ever been in jail that requested to die? Like right off the bat? <laughs> no, there's actually the, it, there's actually a few cases of people wanting to die. Think about it. It's over for them, right? So right. if you're talking about someone who doesn't want the glory, then they want it to be over. Well, what I what I really mean is, think about it, right? He's it's just willing. Unusual. Well, it is unusual, but he's willing <laughs> to give more of his crimes, um, just so he can get a death penalty in another state. Yeah. Or and don't on forget, a federal level. he still wants his name rem- like taken away from the media. So he doesn't want any attention. It's pretty insane. Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, I do think that his end goal is to go down as like the smartest serial killer ever. Like, I think that's his end goal. Right. But I think he did want to protect his daughter in some way. And the fascination kind of goes away. If that person's no longer alive. True. That is true. So now in reality, there was a second problem. You can't just request the death penalty in the United States and get it. You have to go through a trial. And then if you are sentenced to the death penalty, there's a lengthy appeal process that can only be waived after a certain amount of time and appeals have been exhausted. It in no way would ever just take place within a year. But it was clear that Keyes knew none of this. And they were going to exploit his ignorance as much as they could 
to get as much information as possible. So the FBI agent, detective, and prosecuting attorneys agreed to another demand. They said they would try and work on an execution date, and they would not interview Keyes' girlfriend or siblings, and they would leave his name out of the media for the sake of his daughter. They let him know that they were doing a lot for him, and they were going to begin wanting information in return. Not to mention the perks of him being able to leave the jail every time they talk to him. I mean, he gets to shower, he gets to change his clothes, and he gets food and things to drink when he's there. He gets his cigar. So he's really getting a lot of reward. And the people that are in the room with him are saying, you got to start giving us something or this is all going to kind of come to an end. Yeah, that's true. It's like, uh, it's like how much are they willing to give, you know? I mean, this, this information is crucial not only to putting him away, um, but also just for the families that he's affected. So it's like, what are you willing to give up for that? It's kind of it's kind of crazy. It is crazy because you, on the other hand, while you're wanting to get justice for victims, families of victims you don't even know are out there, you also want to respect the families of the victims that have been caught, right? I mean, this guy's kind of being treated like a king a little bit here. Yeah, it's true. So Keyes revealed that he had first planned to sexually assault and kill someone in 1997. He chose a spot in the woods in Maupin, Oregon, where he had gone fishing in the past. He searched for the perfect place to find and take a victim, and then he waited. Now, how he tried to orchestrate this murder was interesting. He chose to wait at a spot at the banks of the Deschutes River, and at a place where there was a particularly difficult turn. So rafters and especially those who would be on like kind of like inner tube things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, Uh, I I do know. (laughs) um, They would kind of like separate a little bit at this turn. So it's where people would have trouble. Okay. So he basically kind of set a trap and he was waiting for someone to get caught in it like an animal. That is... (laughs) Hey... Typical keys. <laughs> I, I know. Well, yeah, and this is his first one. So in the summer, well, that, maybe. You maybe. Never know. We don't know. In the summer of 1997, a girl got separated from the rest of her group. Um, she fell off a raft. She needed to readjust herself on the banks of the river. And this is when Keys ran up quick and he grabbed the girl and brought her into an old um, bathroom. It's not... It is a structure, but it's not really used anymore. So it's kind of like an old bathroom that was set up for people that used to like picnic and stuff. Okay. Kind of like how you would see in like a park. Yeah. Where it's like an old, really old bathroom. Yeah. Don't use it. Gotcha. Exactly. So they were in complete isolation. There he tied her up and raped her. His plan was to murder her. The police asked if that was the first time that he had raped someone. And Keyes said that it was not the first time that he had had unconsensual sex, but it was the first time that he had kidnapped a girl and tied her up with the intention of raping and killing her. So he had raped women before. Or men. Or boys or girls. We don't know. We don't know, yeah. Yes. Um, He was excited for his first murder. He said this buildup was something that had been brewing in him for a very long time. But he said the girl did something that he had not expected her to do. It was, she was calm. It was like 
this had happened to her before. Like this girl has had gone through trauma and she knew what to do to save her life. And she started talking to him and she was saying things like, you're such a good looking guy. You didn't have to do this. If you would have just stopped me, I probably would have come in here with you and done this. And then she starts asking questions about his life and telling him about hers. And really Key's, um, we can establish, is a sadist. So he derives sexual pleasure from people being in pain. This girl is acting like she's not in pain. Do I think internally she's probably screaming her head off? Yeah, but like outwardly she's not projecting that. Right. So It's because, not helping him. Right. So because she didn't do that, um, it wasn't gratifying for him. So, right? Right. Exactly. You know what I mean? That's kind of where we're at. Right. And he said that her talking and like questions and her demeanor really calmed him down. And probably caught him off guard. A hundred percent. He said if there would have been a violent struggle, he would have stabbed her right away. But there wasn't. So the killing would have been easy if his adrenaline was high. There was no adrenaline. So she relaxed him with conversation and he really lost his nerve and he let her go. That's very interesting. Yeah. So Keyes said that this weighed pretty heavily on him. He wished he could have gone back in time and killed her. He said that for years after this event that he regretted it. Um, first, because he had an opportunity and he failed. And second, because he kept like he was watching the news obsessively for years after this attack, thinking, oh, they're going to find me. They're going to find me. Right. I mean, it's a, I mean, it is a loose end. No, it is a loose end. And we really don't know who this person is. He just said the only thing that he knew was that her name began with an L. So it was like Leah or Lena or something like that. So, I mean, this girl is extremely lucky. But we have to know now that Keys, he's not going to let someone go again after this. Right. Investigators are not shocked at the crime that Keys said he committed. But they were shocked about the timing. The attack took place when Keys was 19 years old. He admitted to them that not only was that not the first rape that he committed, but his plans for murder had begun 15 years prior. It's like, what took place in those 15 years? Who were those 40 people on his computer? Like, their minds are spinning at this. Like, what the hell is happening? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, it all, it's almost like from birth, this kid was just going to be bad. Yeah. Right. With his callousness and cunning, there could be so many victims. So their main goal was to keep him talking for as long as possible. At this point, when there's like just even the littlest hint that there could be this amount of victims, they do want to keep him talking. No matter what it's going to cost them because they got to find out what he's doing and how he got away with this for so long. Yeah, and you know, and then you start to question whether or not what he's saying is actually like real. Right. How much of this is fantasy? How much of this is reality? Keyes asked again if that would be enough information for him to be charged federally, as the attack happened in Oregon, a different state than Alaska. Investigators and prosecutors in the room bluffed, something that was made all too easy by the fact that Keyes had fired his attorney and was now representing himself. Now, this is something that I find very interesting 
Keyes is going to become his own attorney. This is something that his hero, right, quoting, Ted Bundy did. Keyes looked up to Bundy a lot, thought he was a very intelligent man. He also was going to mimic a lot of things that Bundy did in his, like, MO, like with his crime crime spree. So I think that Keyes, in a way, here was, like, this was his last chance at replication of Bundy. We are going to see that, you know, he, and we'll get into it later, what he really does. But I think that this is also interesting because Bundy, when Bundy did escape from prison, it was because he was his own lawyer and he was working in a library above a courthouse. And that's how he was able to escape. Right. So, like, it's just, it's interesting that he chose to then represent himself the same as Bundy did. It is interesting. It also gives Keyes more access to things and an easier time in prison because now he is... Now he has to be given unlimited access to the law library. Yeah, it's like there's nothing you can do about that. And he's getting all of this stuff. So he's like playing the system, essentially. He's he's doing well here. (laughs) So they told Keyes that they need something more substantial than a rape of a girl who Keyes didn't even know the name of. All right, he said. And he asked for his go-to requests. A cigar, a Snickers bar, and an Americano. But this time, he also asked for a map of Burlington, Vermont. Vermont was 4,000 miles away from Alaska. What had Keyes been doing there? Well, Keyes is going to explain what he was doing in Vermont the same way he explained the horrendous crimes that he committed against Samantha Koning. And again, just warning you here, it's going to get graphic. As I'm sure you recall, Keyes had nine siblings. And when they grew up, they planted their roots in different religious communities around the country. One of Keyes' brothers um, stayed within the Amish community that the family had lived in in Maine. They spent um, some time in Maine in the Amish community. One brother stayed. Keyes visited his brother a lot. Um, Most of the family had left to go to Indiana to another religious community. And then from Indiana... Some of them are going to go to Texas. We'll get into it later because the Texas one becomes a little interesting. (laughs) So Keyes visited his brother a lot because first he had a property in New York, which upstate New York. So he could kind of go through his property, stay there for a while and then just go up and visit his brother. But also because Maine is home to some of the best fishing and hunting the country has to offer. And those are two things that Keyes was really interested in. So in June of 2011, Keyes planned a visit to his brother. Now, when you fly out of Alaska, final destinations are completely limited. So he was able to get a flight to Indiana, most likely to see some members of his family. And from there, he drove to upstate New York, where Keyes had a property. The property he had was purchased in 1997 and was a 10-acre property with a barn house on Poplar Street and in the town of Constable. This house will become important later as well. After stopping there for the night, Keyes went to drive to Maine. However, he made a pit stop in Vermont. In Burlington, Keyes had planted one of his infamous kill kits. When they heard this, investigators and prosecutors had to ask for clarification. What was he talking about? Well, Keyes said, when I was a kid, I liked the idea of being a pirate, finding buried treasure. So I figure maybe I could bury some of my own. 
find it later. Israel Keyes admitted that he would buy five-gallon buckets from Home Depot and fill it with things that you would need to hold someone captive, like rope, zip ties, duct tape, along with weapons like guns and ammunition, and of course, knives. He also included Drano for cleaning up crime scenes, but also because he believed it sped up the decomposition process. He hid or buried these buckets in all of the places he traveled to. He never kept maps with their locations, but he kept all of the information in his head. All 12 of them. You know what's so insane? (laughs) Just from that, is that how does he know that it helps with decomp? That means that he's probably has sat there with a timer to like, 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 you know what I mean? Like he He's had probably to have, tested with he animals had to have tested and stuff. Yeah. yeah, like he had to have tested it at some point. So that's disturbing, <laughs> number one. Yeah. And number two, there's 12 buckets in the country for him to like kill Correct. people with. Yeah. Scary. And investigators are going to later think that there, there might even be one or two in Canada. Yeah. And mm-hmm. like, oh, that is crazy. So this new terrifying fact is going to send a shiver down the spine of investigators because this meant so many things. First, it meant that everywhere Keyes had traveled in the last 15 years could be places where he may have victims. Second, it meant that it would be easy for him to go undetected because he was killing at random locations that were not associated with him whatsoever. This is one of the reasons as to why the longest reigning serial killer the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, had been successful in hiding his crimes. Random killing spots. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because, and I remember when I was a kid, I was always, like, obsessed with true crime, always. And I watched this one documentary on serial killers. It is strange, but whatever. I feel like we're all in the same boat here. Um A man from the FBI said, and I'll never forget it, for all we know right now, there's a truck driver that's going around killing people, and we have no idea that he's doing it. Because we'll never find a connection to his locations. I mean, yeah, you have to think, I mean, if it's like a serious trucker, to to elaborate on that, right? Going across country. Like, you're going across country, you you know, most of these trucks have cabs. that was Gary Ridgway was a truck driver. Well, right, true, true. But I'm saying even, like, nowadays, the trucks are so well-equipped. Like, you could just stay out on the road all the time and not even be bothered. Yeah. So, like, how would you know? So, this um, is essentially what Keyes is doing. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. So, third, this meant that he could travel undetected. I mean, let's not forget, Keyes is traveling in a post-9-11 world. Where it's, it may not be that easy to travel with weapons. But I will say that there were times that Keyes did travel with weapons and he was never stopped at airport. So um, that whole racial profiling thing, like maybe we should check the crazy looking white guy too. I mean, come on, guys. Like <laughs> we need to start checking these people that look mentally unstable. I think that's the first <laughs> yeah, thing right. we should do. If you see a picture of Keyes, you're like, he's definitely looking shady. Looking a little shady. Yes. So he can now not have to worry about okay i'm gonna go to a like like right here burlington vermont he's just making a pit stop in burlington he knows he has a kill kit there he had to do no preparation on a whim he's just gonna murder and he's made it easy and accessible 
Yes. You know, because you know how like well, some people, some people in the past, they have killed people. There's a trail, whether it be a receipt yes. or anything to link them mm-hmm. um, to that. So you going out and planting a, bu- a five gallon bucket, I mean, that really helps your cause here. It makes things really simple. A hundred percent. That's scary, man. Yes. So the revelation of these kill kits was a turning point. It was here that those in the room with Keys knew that they were dealing with something even worse than they had feared. Keyes said that once he had retrieved his kill kit, the one that he actually buried two years prior. So he buried this two years before. And now he's going to retrieve it. Yeah, because it's just always there. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Oh, my God. He drove around looking for the perfect victim. His search brought him to the town of Essex, Vermont. He said he was looking for a couple this time. He said that he did not want to pick a couple with children in the house. Remember, he said that he had, that had been a deal breaker for him once his daughter was born. And he didn't want to break into a house where there was a dog. He said he didn't really have anything against harming animals. Obviously, we know that from his past. But he said it just complicated things. So we're going to get three dogs, like tomorrow. <laughs> three? Well, I, I want as much protection as possible. <laughs> Or how about two? So fine. Yes. Two. Okay. We can now get a dog. We're we, so excited. We, we haven't yes. done that yet. I'm and we have a fence. We do have a fence. Yes. <laughs> it came with the house. It did. <laughs> Finally, he found the perfect house. He said that he could tell from the backyard that it was an older couple. They did not have any pool toys and there was nothing to indicate that they had a dog. Keys had been correct. The house he had targeted was the home of Bill and Lorraine Courier. Bill was 49 years old and worked as an animal care technician at the University of Vermont. And his wife Lorraine was 55 and worked at the Fletcher Allen Health Care Center. They were known as a happy couple who were very in love. They had family over constantly and were known within the tight-knit community to be the house that always went all out during the holiday season. With lights and decorations. That's so cute. That is cute. Later that same night, after midnight, Keyes drove a fair distance away and returned on foot. He parked in like a Walgreens parking lot that was close to their house. He cut the phone lines on the couple's house and waited to see if it had an alarm system. He knew what to do because he built homes and he installed alarm systems. So he knew if he cut the power, the alarm system would go off. So that was his way of checking. When no alarms went off and no officers showed up at their location, Keyes waited in the bushes for the block and its residents to go to sleep. But one of the neighbors was up for a really long time. He was having a cigar on his porch enjoying a drink. And Keyes, waiting, also had a cigar. Finally, the neighbor went to sleep and Keyes made his move. He had already planned out the motions in his head. He had noticed that there was a window AC unit in the garage, so he removed it from the window and climbed inside. He noticed that the couple had a car inside, and he found a crowbar. He said at that point he realized that he was right. A man and woman lived here, and that was exactly what he had been looking for. When he got to the door that led into the house, he realized that it was locked. He could have opened the door forcefully with a crowbar, but that would have been loud and taken too much time. Instead, he chose to break one of the window panes on the door 
and reach in and unlock it. He was wearing a headlamp. He was in the kitchen and made his way down the hallway where the bedrooms were located. It was clear that the couple had not woken up, and inside he saw the army insignia within the house, and he found out that Bill, interestingly enough, had also served in the 25th Infantry of the United States Army. The same as Keys. That's pretty interesting. It was really interesting because they said the insignia for 25th Infantry is known as the Electric Strawberry, and that's what he had the same one as him. Wow. Okay. But Keys was not faced by this. Like, he didn't even care, which is sad. Well, I mean, he doesn't care about anything. So, I mean, that's true. do I really expect him to no. be moved by this? <laughs> he swiftly made his way into their bedroom and he dove on them. He called it a blitz attack that took place because there was two people. He had been able to, at gunpoint, get both of the couriers tied up. He asked them a million questions, including where their jewelry and ATM cards were. He then asked for their PIN numbers and scratched them onto the surface of the cards. While he was searching the room for money, he noticed that Lorraine was trying to get away, and in doing so, she had fallen from the bed. He picked her back up and slammed her head into the pillow and warned them not to try anything again. He said that this was the point that he got very angry. He then told the couple to get up and head to the garage. He placed them in their own car, Bill in the back seat and Lorraine in the front. He put the AC unit back in the window and the crowbar back on its hook and then got into the driver's seat. And from there, he was headed to an old abandoned farmhouse on the outskirts of town that was in total disrepair. He told the couple not to worry, that he was just going to hold them for ransom. And the whole time the couriers were in the car, they kept trying to tell Keyes that, that he had the wrong people, that whatever he was doing, it wasn't intended for them. And they were sure of it, right? Because they're just an average retired like not retired but like elderly couple yeah like what possibly what motive you know could make someone or what could they have done to make someone go over there and commit or do right. it to them sorry except, middle aged, not elderly yeah i mean they're middle aged. i mean come on sorry come on kid. i'm sorry yeah all right because that'll be us yeah. soon <laughs> um and they also were pleading because bill needed medication that he had to take every day so they were telling keys this over and over again and obviously, at this point, Keyes wasn't listening to a word that they were saying because he learned his lesson in 1997. Yeah. See, he's evol- he evolved, which is scary because scary it's going to continue to evolve. Yes. <laughs> so once they got to the farmhouse, Keyes took Bill out of the car and brought him into an entrance that led straight into the basement. When inside, he tied him to an old stool. When he came back outside to get Lorraine, he saw that she had managed to get herself out of the car and to stand up. When she saw him, she began to run. He chased after her and tackled her and dragged her into the house and up the stairs into the bedroom. There, he strapped her arms and legs to the bed with duct tape and then placed rope around her neck and attached it to the bottom of the mattress. So she, like, couldn't even lift her head up. Wow. She was feisty, he said, and she fought the whole time. As she struggled and he tied her up, Bill could be heard screaming from the basement. 
He was screaming Lorraine's name and demanding to know where his wife was. Once he knew that Lorraine was secure, Keyes made his way into the basement. He took with him his knife, his forty caliber, and a water bottle. So when the investigators asked about the water bottle, Keyes said that he didn't want to get into that. So they let him continue. Several times throughout the conversation about Bill and Lorraine Courier, um, Keyes alluded to doing certain things, but when they asked him about it, he said he didn't want to get into it. He liked keeping some details to himself, obviously for his fantasy, to relive it. When he got into the basement, he realized that Bill had actually managed to half free himself from the ropes. Why are you doing this? He asked. Leave and we won't tell. Like, basically, at this point, you haven't done anything that bad. So Bill just continues to plead with him. And he was thrashing around, mostly free at this point. And he began physically fighting with Keys, and actually at one point punched him really hard in the face. And he was shoving Keys around. So Keys was actually shocked, like, he was getting knocked around by this guy who he thought he was going to easily overtake. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes, you know, adrenaline kicks in and it's that, like, fight-or-flight mentality, right? I mean, you're about to get, you know, you You could be getting killed right now. Right. You know, got to do something. So Keyes said he was furious at this. He had had a fantasy in his mind, and that was the way he wanted it to go down. But Bill was fighting with him, ruining what he had planned. There was no fear. And, of course... As you remember, this is what Keyes got off on. And he wanted to have things happen a specific way. He said he he had plans for Bill. And again, when the investigator said, what were your plans for Bill? He said he didn't want to tell, but Bill was making it impossible. And obviously they knew without Keyes saying it that his plan was to rape Bill Courier that night. He needed to get him to stop. And in a panic, Keyes hit Bill over the head with a shovel that he had in the basement already. And the man fell to the ground. He then realized that the propane heater that he had brought with him had fallen through a hole in the floor. So the way that this old farmhouse was, there was a hole in the ceiling that went basically all the way down to the basement. Oh, wow. So it was, it was a total disrepair, this place. So the heater that he brought that was up by Lorraine fell through the floor. So he had to get it because he didn't want a fire to start. Oh, yeah. Because he wasn't done. Yeah. So he went to go retrieve that and secure it again. And then he went downstairs because he obviously needed to take care of Bill. And he realized that at that moment he had to murder Bill and he didn't want to, but Bill was putting up too much of a fight and it was it had ruined. So at that point, he didn't want to kill Bill, but he had to because he was just putting up way too much of a fight. And he, like I said, ruined his fantasy. So he brought his Ruger 1022 down with him, the, the weapon, the gun that he brought. And he needed to use this weapon because it was the only gun that he had with a silencer on it. That he had in his kill kit, so that would be, like, the most inconspicuous thing to use. I mean, this guy is really smart. I mean, he he knows what to do. I'm just a little surprised that he brought so much with him. Well, no, this is from the kill kit. 
Oh, okay, okay. This is from the kill kit. Yeah. And the propane tank too. That was probably something that he purchased. Yeah. That wasn't going to fit in a <laughs> five say, gallon. I was going to say, yeah. there's no way. Okay. Your expectations are too high. No, no, no. Me. I was just asking. I, mean, um, I believe the silencer wasn't in the um, kill kit. Maybe he brought it. That was yeah. brought with him. So when he got downstairs, he realized that Bill was still alive. He was up and trying to get up the stairs. So he's thinking like, I, this guy is like, I can't kill him. And he was yelling. And Keys, on a reflex, just started shooting because he was scared that Bill was going to overtake him again. And he shot Bill in the arm, neck, head, and chest. And finally, he fell to the floor. He was flustered. He didn't want this to happen. He didn't know this was going to happen. And um, it was kind of ruining his plan. And you need to think, like, his plan was to dominate Bill Courier. And it was really quite the opposite actually happened. So he went outside and had a cigar to calm down. He went back inside when it started raining. In the room that he kept Lorraine in, the rain was pouring in from a hole in the roof. And he said that on the propane like heater, he boiled water on this as a stove, propane stove. Like he boiled water on the stove. Um Again, when investigators asked what he was boiling water for, he would not tell them, and we would never find out. Before he even recounted what happened to Lorraine, investigators knew what they were in for. Lorraine, unfortunately, was going to feel the brunt of Keyes' wrath. He told them that he was kind of reeling from what happened with Bill Courier, and they knew that Keyes' goal was to sexually assault Bill Courier to dominate him. Because that's really, rape is more about control and domination than it is like a sexual um, thing. But now, I mean, Bill Courier had completely demasculated him. Yeah. And now he's going to have to prove his masculinity and dominance, unfortunately, on Lorraine Courier. And that's what sucks. Yeah, that's terrible. So he had said that he cut her clothes off with a knife and that he raped her twice. Again, um, he used a condom each time. And during the second rape, he strangled her until she was unconscious. However, he was not done. He waited for Lorraine to gain consciousness. And when she did, he brought her down to the basement and sat her down on the same stool her husband had been tied to. He positioned her so all she could see was the body of her husband, shot with blood pooling around him. He then stood behind her and strangled her. Once he thought she was dead, he placed a zip tie around her neck and pulled it as hard as he could. Her lack of reaction showed him that she was no longer alive. The scene that stood before Keyes at that point showed investigators that Keyes really had lost control. His crime scenes never looked like this. Keyes usually is going to strangle. And then, because then that stops evidence from pouring out. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, um, it showed him that they, it showed them that he completely lost control. And this is why they estimated that 
eight months later, he killed and murdered Samantha Koning. Like it happened so quickly after the couriers because that murder hadn't gone the way he wanted it to. Like his fantasy had been ruined. Right. It was. It's like his redemption from the last time. Correct. Right. He then had to clean up the scene. He said that he was not worried about the disposal of the bodies. Originally, he said that his intentions were to burn the house with the bodies inside. But he would have liked to do this during the night so the fire wouldn't have been detected for a while. However, because he had to wait for the neighbors to go to sleep and he had had unexpected struggles with the couriers, time had passed more quickly than he thought and the sun was already up. He placed their bodies on the southeast corner of the basement and covered it with debris and wood. He believed that the people that were going to buy the property would either have to burn it down or knock it down. So he was safe in just leaving the bodies there. That if anyone did wander into the abandoned farmhouse, that they would probably think the smell was just that of a dead animal, not two humans. Yeah, you know what? He's For him being really smart and cunning, um, there's one thing that he lacks, and that's a watch. Okay, because this guy loses track of time all the time. He yes. doesn't realize how long things take. Well, so maybe he, gets, he needs like a reminder. He gets caught up in his fantasy world. Right, exactly. He disappears. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I think he needs a watch. Well, <laughs> that's good. Well, I try. Maybe he should put that in his coat kit. Yeah, he should put watches and, and, and stop watches in his, uh, his kits. All right. That was a joke, but whatever. We got you, John. Yeah, all I'm right. laughing. I'm laughing. <laughs> Sorry. It wasn't the reaction you wanted. He did make one more mistake, though. Um, he actually left his shell casing, something that he didn't realize until after the fact. So he was making a lot of mistakes this night. That's because Bill Courier was like a walking dead zombie coming up the stairs and it startled him. He didn't think yeah. that that was going to happen. So, you know, you're in such a panic. And then, like you said, he gets lost in his fantasy. So he didn't, there was no time for him to do that. Right, right. To even go back and check. I, I completely agree. Once he was done, he got into the couple's car and drove it to the Rite Aid parking lot. I'm sorry, it was a Rite Aid, not Walgreens. Um, the Rite Aid parking lot where he left his car. Then he headed northwest for his brother's house in Maine. Once the interview was over with Keyes, the investigators and prosecutors called the police department in Essex, Vermont, to confirm the details of the case. It was true, they said. They had no clue what went on. The couple went missing on a Tuesday night and were reported missing the next morning when both of them didn't show up for work. The only sign of a struggle that was found in the house was one with a broken window. There was no other trace of physical evidence, and because the couple's car had been found in the nearby Rite Aid parking lot, they couldn't determine if the couple had left or someone had stolen their car. Okay, so it's pretty interesting here that um, law enforcement in trying to investigate the disappearance of the couriers, they were just completely baffled because the car was left in a Rite Aid parking lot, which was close. It was just one broken window. They were like, what happened to this couple? This couple literally disappeared. Who would think, oh, somebody from Alaska killed them? Think well, about the, well, it. You, yeah, you wouldn't think that. I mean, it's crazy. So the phone call 
from the investigators and the FBI in Alaska was completely shocking for um, police working the case in Essex, Vermont, um, which you could imagine. That's the last call they were expecting. So once law enforcement in Vermont were told about the remains of the couriers, where they were left, they hoped to bring peace to the family and find the bodies. So they raced to the old abandoned farmhouse, but they realized it had already been torn down. In talking to everyone involved with the demolition and the new owners, it was clear that they had not known that two bodies were in the basement. They demoed that house and didn't find the bodies. So wait a minute. If that's the case, then that means that they knocked the house down and just padded the entire ground. Well, they were in an above-ground basement. So that means they left with the debris. So that Also, oh, when they knocked it, knocked it down, they took everything. Yes. Okay. You know, because I, I will say that sometimes when they do that, depending on the area, the state, whatever, sometimes what they'll do is they'll just knock it down and pat it into the ground pretty much. Uh, is, that that, way, is that union construction? That's not union construction <laughs> at all. But but that is what happens sometimes. Like, I know that that happened a couple times uh, when I lived, well, I call it upstate just for, you know, short version. I know it's not really upstate, but <laughs> where I lived, that's how they would do sometimes. I know for a fact. So, like, they, they would just pat it down. So, what I was trying to say was, imagine you pat it down there underneath there and they build a house on top of it. Well, that almost would have been better well, than what did happen yeah. because now they have to find out which landfill that debris was sent to. Yeah, and then go through it. Yeah, and it just so happened to be sent to Vermont's largest landfill. Of course. <laughs> okay, guys, so we are actually going to um, stop this episode here, and we are going to record the third part of the Israel Keys in a few days, um, just because we wanted to get those two episodes out for you today, because we really didn't want to keep you guys waiting so much. So... We will have the other episode out to you by the end of this week because we feel so bad about what we did, but we wanted to get things out immediately, but this one's super long. So, so on Friday, you're going to receive part three of Israel Keys, which will, we promise, completely conclude our Israel Keys yes. series. I feel like it needs to be a three-parter at this point. It does because we have yeah. so much that we want to discuss, and if we continued it on, this would be like a four-hour episode. It really could be. <laughs> and... We want to record and get both of these episodes out to you by today. So in order to do that, we are going to make a three-part Israel Keys series. All right, guys. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We will see you in two days. Bye, guys. Bye. So this is going to be the third part of our Israel Keys series. And I think this is our first three-parter. You beat me to it because uh, I was thinking about that today actually when i was at work and it is true it is our first three-parter right so i mean i guess we'll get right into it because we have kept you guys waiting long enough so where we left off last time the house in which israel keys admitted to burying the body of well not burying it but just placing the bodies of the couriers in the basement they found out that that farmhouse had been raised and the remnants of it had been taken to the largest landfill in vermont so investigators and police officers worked for 12 weeks to search the landfill, but the remains of the couriers were just never found. 
as a last-ditch effort, they brought cadaver dogs to the site of the abandoned farmhouse and the property that had bore witness to such tragedy. And the dogs did get a hit in what would have been the basement area in which Keyes said that he had placed the bodies. So, in interviews, the lead detective on the case, the one who was investigating the disappearance of the couriers, he's going to explain how hard the investigation had been and how hard it had been to search the landfill. The hardest thing was that he could not return the bodies to the families of Bill and Lorraine Courier, who had fought so hard to survive. He hoped that the dogs catching the scent of the presence of a dead body in the what would have been the basement would bring closure to the family. However, that really wasn't the case. In a separate interview, Bill's sister confirmed that, in fact, that did not bring peace to the family and that she wished that she herself had a few minutes alone with Israel Keys to make it even. I think that sentiment is felt from a lot of people, not just her. Right. I you know? yeah, Family members of <laughs> yeah. most victims probably yeah. feel that way. And she's not wrong for feeling that way. <laughs> no, no. Especially when, um, see, I've never been put in that situation, but I guess it would be horrific to not know what happened to your loved one, but then to find out that something so horrible happened to them is also heartbreaking. So it's almost like you don't know which is worse. Yeah, it's true. I mean, it's just something that I think it just comes to like not having any control over the situation at all. Yeah. Like, you know, this whole family just have just has been at the mercy of like Israel Keys and even the, and the investigation, the you know, everything. So, yeah, it's hard. But I jumped ahead a little too much. After Keyes confessed to the killing of the couriers, he was a little bit more guarded about the information that he gave away to those in the interrogation room. His main goal was to get the execution to happen as quickly as possible. And Keyes, because he was now acting as his own lawyer, had access to all the legal documents, law books, and case studies that he requested. So this is something that he got right from, like we said, Ted Bundy. Um, If you know anything about Bundy, it's actually from the library that he escaped before he went um, berserk in Florida. (laughs) I guess that's what you can call it. (laughs) Well, Keyes was becoming a little bit more versed in federal law and federal executions. And this was something that the prosecutor on the case did not plan for. Keyes kept using Timothy McVeigh as an example. Um, He was, if you don't know, the man that was responsible for the Oklahoma City bombing. He stated in one of his interviews that the execution of McVeigh was able to happen quite quickly because he waived the right of all of his appeals. And this is something that Keyes wanted to do. And in the tapes, it's actually quite interesting. You're going to see Keyes, well, you're going to, you would listen to and see Keyes bring this up to the assistant district attorney that was in the office and he was kind of taken off guard because not only did he not was he not versed in the law that was included in the McVeigh case but he was surprised that Keyes knew information like this well I mean I guess that's what happens when you put a you know an intelligent man in a library with no other like thing to do I mean he he has a goal in mind and he wants to achieve it so he's going to go through whatever he can learn to get there you know exactly And Keyes said that he was apprehensive to give more names and different states because once the states got involved, they will want to charge him with the crimes and then he would be extradited to each individual state. And this would be a long and tedious process. 
So he would rather just keep this all federal and stop involving all of these states. Because if you think about it, now that he mentioned his murder of Lorraine and Bill Courier, well, now the state of Vermont is involved. Right. And of course they're going to want to get their guy. Because they're going to want the public to know if something horrible is going to happen in the state of Vermont, we're going to hold that person responsible. Yeah, which now begs the question, we might not know all of his murders that he might have done because now... You know, he wants to try to keep it as clean, well, cleaner than he has been. So exactly. And then this is when, like, the information kind of stops coming out as much as it was. And also, I also want to just say real quick, I said that he was intelligent. I mean, well, no, he was. He was very cunning. I I mean, I I think that he just had an endgame and he had a plan, I think, from the start of all of this. So I don't know if that makes someone super intelligent or just just, you know, I mean, this guy also, like, lost track of time. Like I said in part two, like so, it, it, I wouldn't say he was he's super intelligent, but I mean we're not you're not dealing with a dummy, I guess. Well, I would say he is super intelligent, and that's the scariest kind of killer. Yeah, that's true. I guess. Because I know, like, what you're saying is like you feel like okay, you're giving this guy a compliment. Yeah, that's what it really is. I don't yeah. want to give this guy a medal for anything. Yeah, but it's hard, you know. But you know, his goal was to die within the year, so he's saying, I until you can give me more then I'm not going to give you anything else. And he did cite the McVeigh case as, hey, you know, it has been done before. Keyes was told the McVeigh trial and execution went so quickly because of, and to put it bluntly, the sheer number of people that he killed. So no matter what they say to make him feel better about the fact that he would get his execution date, Keyes was getting antsy about it. So they basically came out and told him, like, what happened with McVeigh was, like, a massive terrorist attack. And it was horrific, the amount of people he killed, you know, deliberately, you know, parking beneath a daycare center. Like, it was just, like, a horrific crime. So it's very – the magnitude of the Oklahoma City bombing to Keyes admitting to three deaths, definitely, and maybe more, and uh, physical assault – it's really it. They don't equate to each other, right? I mean, I'm not too uh, familiar with the McVeigh uh, case, but I mean, you're right. Like, it's like okay, you killed. Let's just say, okay, you killed three people, right? It's a lot different, like you said, than if he was to go out in a blaze of glory and kill a hundred people. Like, it's right. not the same. So this is when the information came in slower than it had regarding Samantha Coning and the couriers. However, Keyes did tell detectives and special agents working the case that if they were able to find a victim that was in fact his, that he would tell them the story. So he's putting the ball in their court and he's kind of playing cat and mouse here, I feel like. But this is something um, even with his diary and his computer that they had not been able to do yet because Keyes was really good at covering his tracks. So now with Keyes withholding a lot of information, the investigators are going to have to try and find out information on their own. And to do this, they had a list of locations that Keyes had lived throughout his life, and there were plenty, a travel log, which they had recently found out that sometimes Keyes would travel with Kim, who was his girlfriend, And they would use her credit card for flights and hotels. So they had to also obtain a travel warrant for her credit card as well. Now, they didn't believe that Kim was really in on any of this, but it just added a whole nother, you know, like hurdle to get through. They also had his diary 
and the knowledge that wherever Keyes went to kill someone, he would take apart his phone. So he wouldn't just like turn his phone off. He would take the battery out. So what they were specifically looking for were times when Keyes would be traveling and his phone went dead. Like there was no signal being okay. taken. So what they were going to do was they were going to use all this information starting from the beginning of his life. They knew about the rape that had occurred in the outhouse in 1997. So they chose to go back to 1996 when Keyes was 18 years old, an adult. At this time, he was living in Colville, Washington. So they look up missing persons in that area during that time, and two cases are going to pop up. Both were murdered 12-year-old girls. Their cases never solved. Now, Keyes had told investigators that he did not target children, but really he said that he didn't target children after his daughter was born. So doesn't that statement imply that at one point he could have, especially when he was 18 years old, meaning that the victims were only six years younger than he was, targeted children? Yeah, I mean, that's possible, right? I mean, it it makes sense. I mean, to say that there was a revelation that he had that he was not going to hurt children meant that at one point it had to have went through his mind. That he, or, yeah, that he did. Or that he did. Right. So, usually there's an escalation of murders, and that's something we could totally see with Keyes, especially later on um, in his life. The separation of time between the killing of um, the couriers and Koning was very short. And you could see that like he was needing more and more. So that's kind of what they were looking for here. What was the beginning of Keyes' process? And like most serial killers, they learned that it had started with animals and those that are helpless, right? And then the thrill gets more and more because the risk is greater and greater. So it would make sense that if Keys was the first victims that Keys would have taken would have been helpless victims like 12 year old girls. That's true. I mean, I mean, when you really put it on paper or you're saying it out loud, it makes sense. Right. Like this definitely could have could have happened. And those definitely could have been his victims. Right now. And even when we get more into it. So, well, the first girl that had gone missing was Julie Harris. And the 12-year-old girl had two prosthetic feet. Now, not only was she 12 years old, but that was going to make things really difficult to fight someone who could overpower you. Right. She had been last seen on March 3rd. She had left her home, and one witness said that he had seen the girl with a tall man in a trench coat. However, it was her mother's live-in boyfriend that was the number one suspect, as he did admit that he had gotten into an argument with the girl the night before she had gone missing. He was never formally charged, but he was always suspected. Julie's mother maintained that the police were trying to blame her boyfriend, but she knew that it hadn't been him. One month after her disappearance at Kettle Falls, where the Colville River flows into Lake Roosevelt, The girl's artificial feet and purse were found. A year after her disappearance, her body was found by three young boys playing in the woods. Dental records confirmed that it was the body of Julie Harris. But her case has never been solved. The second case occurred a few months later. A trailer had been found on fire. 
When authorities were able to put the fire out, the remains of 29-year-old Marlene Emerson were found. Her 12-year-old daughter, Cassie, was missing. About a month later, her remains were found by horseback riders in the woods. Her body badly decomposed. It was the same as the Harris case. Animal interference left the investigators with no evidence to go on. However, Marlene Emerson's dangerous lifestyle was what investigators eventually blamed the crime on. However, two murdered girls disposed of in the same way, a murder covered up by arson, no physical evidence left behind, and the fact that no other murders occurred like this once Keyes moved out of the area, made investigators believe that Israel Keyes was looking pretty suspicious for these two murders. Now, when confronted about the murder of Julie Harris and um, Cassie and Marlene Emerson, he denied it. That's interesting that he denied it. But you think that he denied it because he was ashamed of it? Because when he came to that conclusion that he doesn't, he should not be attacking kids? Like, once he had his own child, that he doesn't want to be associated with that anymore? Like, that being tied to him as a legacy? I completely agree with that. I think that... He really didn't want to admit to this because it would be tied to his child. He didn't want his child to think that he did those things because that seems to be his one weak spot. Yeah. What's also interesting is like they're claiming that he could have been, what, around 18 when he was doing that? Correct. So like if that's the case, it kind of shows two things to me. One, which is surprising, is that he kind of knew to leave those bodies out far away so the animals would get to it and it would decompose faster that takes some skill to like think that right but then also like you have to understand that this is his evolving time too like he's starting to get better at it and learn how to and do learn things. how to do things that, like to make it right he doesn't want anybody to know he's doing this so like he's getting better at covering his tracks like you said earlier so that's that's so interesting he's, yeah he's taking on crimes that i think would have been easy for him to to commit and because they're easier, he could learn and take the time to learn as he's doing it. Right. Like Keyes once said in his interrogation room that he was asked a question and he said, oh, back then when I was smart, I let them come to me. Okay. So like, I think he was admitting that he kind of got started getting carried away and needed to kill more often to basically satiate himself and when he was smart was when he was able to kind of control his emotions more like i guess he's referring to this time now in the beginning of his life when he began his attacks and his murders when he would wait for the perfect situation you know and and it seems like that's what he came upon in these yeah. situations you know it's so crazy um too like i'm just sitting here right now and i'm thinking to myself Obviously, I'm not a murderer, and I don't ever plan on that, um, but you have to think to yourself, right, just like anything else, if you get to a point where you commit murder, you just, you know, whether, whether it be an animal or a person or whatever, right, it must, in your mind, be it breaks that barrier down, because once you do it once, you're going to do that again, right, I mean, because that's the point of no return, Right. So I'm just like sitting here thinking like that's such a crazy thing to me. Like if you had those tendencies to want to do those things, it's so crazy because once you get to that point where you break the barrier of killing something, 
the next time just going to be easier and easier and easier. Right. And I also would say it's probably like a drug where you're going to need a bigger and bigger high each time. Yeah. So this brings us to three weeks after Keyes' confession about the couriers and just before they were going to begin searching the dump. Keyes had access to the internet in his cell because he was his own acting attorney, so he was updated on the search for the bodies of the couriers. In the next interview that he went to, he asked the investigators and prosecutors about the search, and he seemed quite pleased with himself that he had been so good about concealing his crime. See, like, even when he, like, kind of lost it a little bit, because I would say that he lost it with couriers, he still had gotten, I guess you could, the only word you could say is lucky. That that house had been basically taken down to the ground, and they still didn't find the bodies. That's true. And they couldn't find the bodies in the dump. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But, I mean, he kind of knew that by leaving them there, they would decompose as well. You know what I mean? Right. So I I guess there was some, like, there was some solace in him leaving that like right like he was like i i still had it even though i lost control i still had it. exactly so he was very pleased with himself in the interviews with police talking about that 100 percent. so it was basically confirmed that if keys would have never and if this is so true if keys would have never confessed to the kidnapping assaults and murder of the couriers we would never know what happened to them that's right they would have never been found yeah, and that's scary. It, that's terrifying because how many missing persons cases do we have like that now? A lot. <laughs> so this excitement, although sickening, was good because it got Keyes talking again, right? It built up his confidence. He said that before he had not been entirely honest. He told them that at first his attack on Samantha Coning was not really the first time that he had thought about committing a crime in his own backyard. For some reason, within the last few years, his desire to kill had definitely increased. And in the spring of 2011, he could not resist his urges anymore, and he went to Earthquake Park. He said he was looking to use his sniper on an unsuspecting victim. He had also buried two kill kits in Eagle River. Finally, he got bored in Earthquake Park and moved to a spot which was very similar to like a lover's lane. He had his sights set on a couple that were parked alone in a car. So, like, he's looking at them with a sniper rifle. Now, I know that these two killers didn't use sniper rifles, but this is very Zodiac and Son of Sam to me. Yeah, like Lover's Lane type of thing. Like Right, was like there. that was Zodiac. Right. But then also, like, Son of Sam also approached couples in their cars. Right, and just pulled the trigger, yeah. Right. Well, just as he was going to take his shot, a cop car pulled up. Obviously, the car was there to kind of tell the couple to get lost because technically it was private property. Keyes said that he changed his plan. He was then going to kill the cop instead. However, minutes later, a second cop car pulled up. The first officer had called for backup, something Keyes thought strange for such an innocuous situation. But thank God the guy did or else Keyes would have shot him. I mean, that's that's true, actually. Like, what are the odds? I can see him, like, doing what he's doing and saying to himself, hmm, that's odd. Two cops for, like, um, it's it's just two people in a car. It's just been a slow night. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. Well, Keyes said that he had breathed a sigh of relief, glad that he didn't shoot that first cop, because then the second one would have been a witness to see where the shot had come from, probably would have chipped. There would have been a pursuit. 
So he basically just kind of like got out of that situation. He told those in the room with him that the incident had spooked him. So he bought a police scanner and chose to do his hunting in his old stomping ground, he said. So this is when the FBI really takes a deep dive into his travel records. And they find out first something horrifying. If they were to make a bubble of all of the places that he could potentially have taken victims by creating a radius around all of the places he traveled, it is possible that he could have victims anywhere, anywhere in the continental United States, in Alaska and Quebec. And you know what? I believe that 100%. Between him having kill kits... You know, he's just very, like, brazen. Like, he doesn't really care. So, I mean, yeah, and, I can't... And what he would do... And what he would do is, once he got to a location, he would rent a car. So, what they did was they... Using the credit card, so they knew what cars he had. And they called all of the car rental places. And they said, like... Basically, they, they obtained an average of how many miles he traveled when he got these rental cars. So that's how they created the radiuses from the places that he traveled to. And it covered everywhere. That's pretty uh, – that is that is super impressive that they were able to gather all that information yeah. to figure that out. But that's cool. They also – it's really funny because one of my friends that's a teacher, she's a math teacher, and she teaches geometry. And she was talking to me about, you know, kind of like creating like – word problems because common core like whatever teacher mess and when i heard about this i was like oh my god what a funny word problem that would have been like yeah right <laughs> if israel keys was able to travel these many miles create the radius around the map wouldn't that be <laughs> how <crazy>? many potential <laughs> victims could he have you know <laughs> oh my god wow that's horrible okay so they also learned that keys had made many trips to mexico about a dozen but not for hunting as he would call it. Israel Keyes traveled to Mexico to get medical procedures. Every procedure, besides one, is unknown. But we do know that they were all cosmetic. However, his looks didn't change. So, how was he modifying himself? Well, he got Botox to reduce sweating He told investigators that he was always nervous about sweating too much at crime scenes. So, they knew that he was modifying his body in order to make himself basically the perfect serial killer. So, like, the one procedure that they think they couldn't find out about, they thought he was modifying his fingerprints. Like, like, removing his fingerprints? You can modify your fingerprints. Like, it's obviously an illegal surgery which is why he was going to mexico wow okay he also got the lap band now keys is very tall and very lean there was no need for him to have weight loss surgery and this is why he had to go to mexico because obviously there's certain like you can't just get weight loss surgery in the united states because you want to right there has to be medical reasons for you to get it done But they don't ask those questions when you're paying for it in cash and you're doing it in another country. So he also went back to the to Mexico several times to have his lap band filled, which is basically routine maintenance that you have to have performed once you have the lap band. Now, they think that he got the lap band surgery in order to go hours without eating, be able to like fill himself up quickly. Yeah, because, I mean, you can't eat a lot and you're you're kind of 
full for a while. So, yeah, like, could you imagine just hanging out for hours and you don't need to eat? Right. Wow. That's, that, I mean, those are pretty aggressive things to do. Yes. To continue killing people. I mean, that. wow. Yeah, it's just another modification that made him, like, this perfect predator. Yeah, that's true. It's terrifying that he went to those lengths because that's his commitment. This is his lifestyle. But I would say it also explains later on while he was in Alaska when they were explaining like his difficulty with alcohol. Because when you do have the lap band, you get drunk quick. And because your body absorbs it so quickly, but it also leaves your system quickly. Um, There's a big correlation with people getting lap band surgery and developing alcoholism. No, it's true. Yeah. I mean, statistics are high. Yeah. So Keyes also made trips out of the country into Canada, either when he was up in New York State or he was returning to Alaska. And there he would pay for prostitutes. Now, these prostitutes were either women or they were transgender. The special agent on the case did speculate that this is where Keyes was going to practice his bondage techniques. And that's something that he did verify. It really would have been impossible for the FBI to use his travel history to determine where to look for missing persons in the area, because that would encompass the entire country. So they went back to him again, saying that the states are going to be pushing victims on him unless they confess. And here, they're trying to gain his trust, because they want to show him that they're trying to get this execution date to take place. And they're saying, if you don't confess definitively to certain murders, what the police are going to do is they're going to start pushing these victims on you. And that's not something you're going to want because that's going to just prolong everything for you. Like, you're not going to be executed if law enforcement in New Hampshire is pushing murders on you, in New York is pushing murders on you, in Alaska, in Washington, in Oregon. So... It's better for you to just tell us everything that happened or else they're going to just make these assumptions about you. So trying to kind of like gain his trust here, because in turn, that would mean extraditions and no execution date in mind. So this is when he confessed to robbing a community bank in Tupper Lake, New York, using a gun. Now, this uh, bank was very close to where he had his own his house in upstate New York. He also implied that around the same time he had disposed of a body in New York. However, he would not admit to the sex of that person or where they were from. Now it was at this point that everything changed. Up until this point, Keyes was cooperating with investigators to fill in the gaps between 1996 and 2012. What had he been doing for those 16 years? Who had he hurt? And Keyes promised to continue speaking as long as they played by his rules. Work on an execution date, keep him anonymous, and cede to his needs while he was in prison, like the cigarettes and Americanos. However, it was during this pivotal moment when he had started to give more information that something devastating happened. The 12-week stretch, which had concluded in Vermont, after tons and tons of garbage had been sifted through by officers who gave up their vacation time to try and find the body of the couriers, they had come up with nothing. They were completely unsuccessful. 
and Vermont authorities were ready to use a different tactic to get answers. Now, we still do not know who, but someone in law enforcement in Vermont leaked Israel Keyes' name to the media, who in turn printed articles linking the man who had been arrested for the kidnapping of Sarah Koning in Alaska to the murder of the couriers. That's pretty crazy because that is the one thing that he didn't want to happen. But that means that they were not only desperate, but I think just so pissed off that this guy is just getting away with it and that they can't get the justice for the families, that that's the lens that they were able to, that they wanted to go to. Yeah, they were, they were just as furious as Keyes was. Yeah. So in interviews after the leak to the media, Keyes expressed his anger with the FBI. He said, I told you I didn't want you to get the locals involved. They don't understand our deal. But the damage was done. And one of the main bargaining chips that they held had been lost. Those who sat in the interrogation room with Keyes now had to build up the credibility that it had taken months for them to establish. It's just so unfortunate. It is. It it, it almost kind of like you don't know whether to be mad at whoever leaked it or, or just fine with it you know what i mean because now this guy now is gonna hunker down and not say a word no i completely agree with you because at the same at one point you're frustrated for the police in vermont and you want justice for the rest of the the courier's family but then at the same time you now we know knowing all this information how sensitive it was trying to pull information from keys right it's complicated i mean it was a job in itself yeah (laughs) So I, and I thought you guys would think this was funny. So when Keyes found out that his name was released um, and he was basically established as a serial killer in, in one of his interviews, he was like, great. Now they're going to make some of that true crime bullshit about me. That's what he said. <laughs> Here we are, buddy. Here we are. Um, so prior to the leak, Keyes had been calm and he was forthcoming with answers to the questions that were asked of him. But afterwards, he became combative. So at this point, Keyes is going to just completely stop asking for things, especially cigars. He told investigators that it made him feel like he owed them something when he smoked them because really allowing Keyes to smoke these cigars took great effort because you had to take Keyes out of the building to smoke them. So you kind of had to clear an area, you had to take him to a parking garage, and then like allow time for him to smoke them. So it was kind of inconvenient, so that's why he stopped asking for them. The prosecutors and investigators tried to do everything they could to make him feel at ease and let him know that they were working on getting him an execution date that he wanted so badly. Because really that's now the only, like, bargaining chip they have is the execution date so they really had to work on that but keys became very tight-lipped so now the intention of the investigation shifted they're like if we're not going to get information out of keys mouth directly then we got to like boots to the ground that's what we have to do yeah so while keys had been explaining what happened with samantha coning his kill kits and the couriers other special agents in the fbi had been working hard at the case away from the interrogation room Two agents had been tasked with finding out more about who Keyes was. Others, analysts at Quantico, were working hard at analyzing his computer. Now, it's really unfortunate because Keyes actually had two laptop computers and he destroyed the one that had what he called all of his information on. 
So they're basically working on his like kind of like second use. Almost computer. like a backup computer. Yeah. Right. Those who were trying to figure out the complex man went to the only source they were allowed to speak to. Keys's mother. She told them the same story that Keys had about his childhood and the disappointment that she had felt when her son revealed that he did not believe in God. She recalled one incident that was very strange on one of the occasions that Keys had gone to Texas to visit her and his sister. Now, first, I just want to give you a little backstory here because, well, I think it's really interesting. While they were living in Indiana, where they had moved after they were a part of an Amish community in Maine, two of Keyes' sisters and mother were all recruited by what I guess you could call street preachers to join a different religious movement. They were preaching that the current generation of Christians were the darkened generation and they were full of excess, sin, and hypocrisy. And that they needed to give up all of these excesses and material things to be close to God again. And they are classified as being born-again Christian revivalists. So they wanted to recruit members to join them. Their goal was to pool all of the money from the church's residents and move to Dallas, Texas, and basically create a community. That sounds like a cult. I would say. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. (laughs) Well, the members move to Dallas and Keyes' two sisters and his mother go with them. So that's why Keyes' mother and sisters live in now in Dallas. At this point, his father had passed away. So things really don't work out for the group in Dallas. So they end up moving to Wells, Texas, where they buy many homes within the town So now, basically, they make up a very large percentage of the population of Wells, Texas. Guess how the people of Wells, Texas felt about this? Probably not good. Not too good. (laughs) Um, And to give you a time frame, they moved to Wells in 2011, which is when Keyes is going to visit them. So the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department starts getting all of these phone calls from members of the community. And basically, when... The people from this church move into Wells and buy all of these homes. They thought, oh, my God, these are the Branch Davidians, right? Because uh, what Texan doesn't immediately think David Koresh when they think Colt, you know? Right. No, that's a good point. Yeah. (laughs) So they thought the Branch Davidians were trying to, like, make a comeback. And they were trying to do it in Wells, Texas. So they start calling the sheriff's department saying, like, there's some stuff going down here. So the group, the group of churchgoers, they call themselves now the Church of Wells, and they were heavily armed at all times. I'm sure many of you have heard of the Church of Wells before. Um, they were very rough with disciplining the children within their community. And one Wells um, town member who's not a part of the church is actually going to call 911 to report the fact that a man had been marching his wife and children up and down the street with a rifle in his hand for 12 hours. I mean, that's uh, that's extreme. Uh, I'm going to go with yeah. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> right. And the reason I said the Church of Wells might sound familiar to you, and it should sound familiar to you too, John, because we watched the Dr. Phil episode on it. Wait, we did? Yeah, remember. Um, so the whole Church of Wells appeared on Dr. Phil when there's this horrifying tale of a guy who ran into 
a street preacher in downtown Austin, and he said he accepted a bottle of water from the man, and the next thing he remembered, he was in and out of consciousness and being rushed to a van, and he believed he was drugged. And then when he came to, he woke up in a chapel that belonged to the Church of Wells. Oh, yes, I do recall that. Yeah, yeah. And then over the next few days, he said he was given drugs and preached to as the members of the church tried to convert him and get him to join. Finally, the man's family was able to track him down with the help of his cell phone location. And they got into like a pretty serious verbal altercation with the church. But they were finally able to like get their family member back, the guy who had been drugged by the street preacher. So and there's so many cases of this happening in association with the Church of Wells. That is so creepy. Yes, and one woman completely disappeared from her house in Arkansas without any notice. She left everything behind, and weeks later, she resurfaced at the Church of Wells. Many completely cut off contact with their past after joining, so, as you can guess, it's been classified as a cult. They are also known for disrupting other Christian church services and heckling and denouncing whoever is preaching. In 2015, they even interrupted famed preacher Joe Olstein while he was preaching in Houston. However, right after Keyes was captured, this is what the Church of Wells is most known for. In May of 2012, a three-day-old infant of one of the church members had passed away. 911 was not called, nor were any medical professionals or other law enforcement agencies. Instead, the church leaders, whom I may add are allowed to take on as many wives as they want in arranged marriages, carried the infant body of the baby from house to house praying for the resurrection. Praying for his resurrection. Wait, so the baby died. Mm -hmm. And they pretty much put this dead baby as a spectacle around town. And everyone was praying for the baby to be resurrected. Correct. Wow. So they did this for 15 hours before they finally eventually called 911. And this was like national news that this took place. That's crazy. Yeah. God. So when this church was first formed, Keyes' mother and two sisters, they joined. Keyes went to visit and rented a car. He told his family that he was going to go and get rid of some guns that he had, like to sell them. They didn't think this was weird because Keyes was always buying and selling guns. And of course, you know, they were very familiar with guns being a part of the Church of Wells. But the odd thing was that Keyes, after he said he was going to sell some guns, just went totally dark for two days. He went completely missing. So it'd be like if you're going to visit your family and then you're like, oh, I'll be right back. And then you just disappear for two days. After being gone for 24 hours, they finally get a call from Keyes. And he told them that he had gotten lost and that he should meet them in a parking lot of a Walmart. This struck his mother as odd because Keyes never got lost. He was usually so good with direction. When they went to the parking lot, he wasn't there. Instead of going home, her and her daughters chose to spend the night sleeping in their truck outside of the Walmart, I guess waiting for him to get there. And they hadn't heard from Keyes for the whole night. Finally, the next morning, they receive another phone call from him, and he claimed, oh, I'm on the other side of the Walmart. So when they drive to the other side, they do find him. And they said that when they found him, he was filthy, covered in mud, disheveled, and disoriented. 
and that it had been very strange. So, like, what did he do in those 48 hours? Yeah. Maybe he was making kill kits and burying them. Or murdering someone. Or murdering someone, yeah. (laughs) Next, the special agents asked about the wedding. We know that after Keyes had disposed of Samantha Koning's body and placed a ransom note on the sign of Connor Lake Park, that he had gone to Texas for his sister's wedding, which is why he was traveling throughout Southeast United States, and then eventually he made his, his way to Texas. Now, I will say that his sister, I don't want to say participating, it's her wedding, but kind of not, she was being married to one of the elders of the Church of Wells, but he already had several wives and she was pretty young. Okay. So that's the kind of wedding he's going to. Not judging, just saying, you know, like, it's kind of cool to only be married to one person. It makes things a little cool. bit easier. Yeah, I guess so. So two days after the wedding, he had been arrested. They asked her specifically if she thought it would be weird that he flew from Alaska to Las Vegas and then he drove throughout the southwestern United States to eventually get to Texas. And she said no, because he often did that. So this makes you think about his kill kits and the crimes that he may have committed along the way as he was withdrawing money from Samantha and her boyfriend's joint checking account. They asked if Keyes had acted strangely at the wedding, and she confirmed that it seemed that something was very wrong with her son. Now, this wedding, like I said before, was an arranged marriage with one of the elders from the Church of Wells, and it turned out that Keyes made a little bit of a spectacle of himself at the wedding. His sister, the bride, took some time out of her day, you know, during her big wedding day, to talk to her brother about accepting Jesus Christ back into his life. Now, usually Keyes either brushed off conversations like this, or he would get into a heated religious debate with his family members. But this time he didn't. He just sobbed. He told her that he couldn't. And when others gathered around to see what was wrong, and also tried to persuade him to join the Christian faith again, and most likely their cult, he continued to sob and tell them that they had no idea what he'd done. So he can never believe in God again because of what he's done. Okay. It's almost like his confession to his family. I guess so, yeah. If you think about it. Back in the interrogation room, Keyes is giving the investigators and prosecutors limited information about his crimes. He told them that he could give them a house fire in Texas. He said that it had been a house that looked like it had belonged to hoarders and that it was disgusting inside, in Alto, Texas. So from the information that they gained from Keyes' mother and what he just said, they thought, okay, this probably took place when he went missing for those two days. So let's look for, in the, that 48-hour span, house fires that took place in Texas. So when they looked it up, they found that there were no fires in Alto, Texas, but they had found a fire in Alito, Texas, assuming that like maybe he just read the sign incorrectly. Yeah, or couldn't remember, maybe. Right. You know, it's I mean, possible. God, you know, after a while. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're all over the place. Right. You can't remember the name of the towns you've been to. So the house seemed to also match Keyes' description of being um, just a lot of stuff was found in there. Investigators saw this as leadway into asking him questions about other crimes that he had committed in Texas. They know that Keyes, on top of kidnapping, sexually assaulting, and murdering people, also loved to rob banks. In fact, robbing a bank was something that Keyes often did after a murder to keep his high or his adrenaline rush up. 
but he said he could never equate the rush that he got from the murders. Finally, after weeks of frustration, they come out and just ask Keyes, how many bodies does he have? And he tells them, less than a dozen. They are frank with him, and they let him know that if he wants to keep working on this execution date, that he really is going to have to start giving them more information. Because at this point, investigators were just, they were tired of him. And they were like, come on, if you want something from us, you've got to give us something. Right. Like, we're not just going to kill you. Right. (laughs) That's what they want. Yeah. That's what he wants. Now, while they're trying to get keys to speak, back at Quantico, the computer analysts have discovered that on his laptop, there were 44 pictures of people. They had been saved in the same location as Samantha's photos. They varied in age, gender, and race. They told those working in the interrogation room that they were trying to identify them as missing persons. See, because it's hard to say, like, okay, who were all the missing people in the world? But now they have these 44 people that they're going to try and cross-reference into missing persons list. But it's hard to do that. Because what Keyes would do is he would go on these people's social media accounts. And, take like, the pictures he had from Samantha were from her MySpace account. Okay. Right. It's not like he's snapping photos of people. Right. Right. But this is something, obviously, that was going to take time. So... That's just what they had to wait for. So as they slowly started gaining his trust again, Keyes hinted at several locations in small bits, never really revealing anything that would allow the FBI to identify a person. Finally, thinking that those in the room were growing impatient and that the conversations would soon end, Keyes said he would talk about three murders that took place in the state of Washington. He said that the first homicide had been between June and August of 2001, when he first moved to Nia Bay, Washington, with his pregnant girlfriend. He said cryptically that Nia Bay was a boring town, right? Like, he he needed something to do. Washington State, especially its park systems, reported so many missing men, women, and children that him being so vague would never, you know... No they, ties to him. Right. They right. Would, it would be really difficult to do that. But, I mean, the timing does make sense to the um, FBI profilers because at this time in his life, Keyes had many stressors. The stressor of his fiance girlfriend being pregnant and also the move to Nia Bay. Now, the mother of Keyes' daughter is a mix between African-American and Native American. And she lived in the Native American community in Nia Bay. So Keyes is going to move with her there. And at first, Keyes was not very well received because he was an outsider coming into the Native American community. So it took him a while to earn the trust of the people there. Eventually, he earned their trust by like helping them with like building things. But it was not easy for him in the beginning. So they, they think like, okay, maybe these stressors led to him committing that murder. Right. Of course. So then he took his second and third victims, possibly a couple, between 2005 and 2006 in a park on the other side of the state. He said that he had killed a couple, but that was as much information as he was going to give. He said that this attack took place in Olympic State Park, but there were no couples missing from there during that time. Later, he said that it could have been another summer. So, like, see, he's, like, kind of jerking them around a little bit. 
Right. But that also is kind of scary to think about it. Like, if this couple was in the park, or he claimed they were in the park and they couldn't find it, it's possible that maybe he, like, followed them home or followed them somewhere, yeah. and then it was... No, he said the murder took place in the park, and oh. then he had left them there. Okay, so now he's... Okay. I see what you're saying. He claimed that he took those victims, and that what he did with them, actually, was he took them to Lake Crescent because... Its average depth was 300 feet. So he figured, okay, if I'm throwing someone in that lake, no one's going to find, no one's going to go down 300 feet. Right. The FBI searched for missing persons and couples from the state during the time period. They even went back a few years, went forward a few years, but it was hard to do because there were so many missing people, but there were difficult circumstances. They didn't know if it was a couple. They didn't know if it was just a random man and woman. So it was really hard to tie that to keys. Also, the United States has a national database system for missing children, but they don't have one for missing adults because that number is really high. And, well, legally, an adult is allowed to leave his life if, if he or she chooses to do so. Right. That is true. I mean, I mean, that happens a lot. And there's so many people that go missing every year in this country. So Right. And really the only reason we do have a national database for, for missing children is because the FBI gets involved with missing children. And, of course, they're a federal agency. Right. Of course. I mean, they have the abilities, the to means do to do that. Right. Keyes had said that one of his victims had been murdered in a state park in Washington, but they had been found and that it had been deemed an accident. So that was another clue they were using to try and identify this person. After this meeting, the investigators chose to leave Keyes alone for a while. They were clearly not getting anywhere with him, and maybe by revoking some of these privileges that he had been given, it would make him start talking again. And at the end of October 2012, they resumed their conversations. This time, two new people were added to the interrogation. They were special agents that had been working with Keyes' case in Washington. They were trying to determine who the four victims were in Washington from 2001 through 2006, and who the young girl was that Keyes had sexually assaulted in 1997. They investigated what robberies had taken place during those times as well, so they were pretty busy. They were also involved in the custody battle to return Keyes' daughter to her biological mother which is eventually what ended up happening. The bank robberies were easy to determine, but the sexual assaults and murders were not. They basically told Keyes, we need to know information. This is your last chance to start talking again, or else we're not going to help you. But Keyes is going to fire back. He told them, no, this is not how it's going to happen. Now that his name had been leaked to the press, he might as well do an interview with CNN and let the public know that he asked the FBI to be executed, and in return he would give them information. But the FBI just wasn't getting the job done. Now how would the public feel about that? Wow. Okay. That's and, pretty crazy. And it's true. I mean, everyone in the country, if they found out about a serial killer, they would say, well, give it to him. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Get he, the information yeah. and give it to him. Yep. So, um... Now they're in a bit of a bind, and it, and it's really it's not that simple because you can't just bypass the Department of Justice. But you're not really thinking rationally when you're thinking, okay, here's a serial killer that wants to admit to these murders. We should find out. 
what also, he did. Yeah, also, there are people out there that would think that that would be the easy way out and that he should suffer. Like, there's always a flip flip side to that, you know what I mean? Like, oh, why just give him what he wants, you know? So no, all, I agree with that. There are people like that that would feel that way as well. I agree. So the special agents just started to ask Keys questions. Was he responsible for the death of the two 12-year-old girls and one of their mothers? He denied it. He said he remembered hearing about the case, but he didn't follow the stories. Come on, buddy. You're an 18-year-old budding serial killer, and you're not following um, three deaths that just happened in your town? I doubt that. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Come on. So they didn't believe him at all. And he stated that he had killed um, those three people in the Washington State Parks, but he refused to give the names of those victims. Finally, the other special agents and detectives that have been working the case since the beginning, Godin and Bell respectively, wanted to ask him questions. They had always suspected that Keyes had been responsible for two deaths that they just couldn't pin on him. Remember when Keyes said that he went missing for a few days in Texas? Well, during that time, a man had died. His name was Jimmy Tidwell. It was believed that Keyes might have stalked out the cabin where Jimmy lived and killed him. In reference to the timeline of things, this would have been when Keyes visited his family for a few days following his cruise from New Orleans after the murder of Samantha Koning. The reason that investigators believe Keyes was responsible for the murder of Tidwell is, one, because Keyes said that he couldn't calm down, as he put it, after the murder of Samantha. Secondly, Tidwell wore a construction hat and had very long hair. And during those two days, Keyes did admit that he robbed a bank in Texas. On security footage, the man robbing the bank could be seen wearing a construction hat with long hair. When questioned about this, Keyes said in a pretty offhanded comment, because they asked him, well, your your hair's not long. And um, he said, there's there's other ways to get real hair. So what do you think that he... Like, kind of cut the guy's cut the hair guy, and yeah. taped it into a hat and right. robbed a bank. Jeez. <laughs> His construction hat. Yeah. But he wouldn't go into further detail and he wouldn't admit this. So another victim that they wanted to get more answers about is a woman by the name of Deborah Feldman. Earlier in the investigation, while going through all of the pictures... Keys had on his computer, an analyst at the FBI was able to match one of those photos with a woman who had gone missing from Hackensack, New Jersey. Oh, wow. Close to home. Yeah. In 2009, we, our first apartment was like right by Hackensack. Yeah. Good times. Good times. times. Um, But in 2009, a woman was abducted from there. They were able to place Keys in New Jersey at the time And they knew he had robbed a bank in Tupper Lake, New York on April 10th, 2009. That was one day after Deborah Feldman had been reported missing. And they know that he commits robberies after murder. So they're like, okay, maybe he kidnapped Feldman in Hackensack and then took her up to upstate New York, murdered her, went and robbed the bank. That's the theory. And then she was... Remember he said, oh, when I got rid of a body in upstate New York, they're assuming that that was Deborah Feldman. And when they had showed Keyes a picture of Deborah, he denied knowing what happened to her, but there was a clear reaction from him. 
Like he stopped at her picture. Right. So I mean, it was it was pretty obvious that he did know what happened yeah. to Deborah Feldman. One hundred percent. So they had believed that he was involved in her kidnapping and the robbery that took place afterwards. Now, at the time, it wasn't really thought of that way because Deborah Feldman, who was an older woman, had been heavily involved in drugs. So when she went missing, people just thought that maybe she was on a binge versus getting kidnapped. Right. But isn't that just perfect? Like a perfect, perfect scenario? Yeah. yeah. So when they asked him again, he wouldn't discuss the case. But most people do believe that he was responsible for Deborah Feldman's disappearance. Investigators were growing tired of Keyes not giving information at times, just being outright hostile. Over the following four weeks, it was more or less the same. Which brings us to November 30th, 2012. Over the past eight months of him being arrested, investigators had interviewed him 25 times. The last meeting took place on that day, November 30th. In this interview, Keyes did give some information out. Using a video drone and Google Maps, Keyes was able to tell them the location of many of his kill kits. This seemed to excite Keyes and... Because of that, he surprisingly agreed to begin telling the investigators what they wanted to hear as long as he could give them the information in this way. Because he was kind of reliving this. Right, it was just something for him to do. Through seeing the location yeah. through the drones. Yeah. However, they received devastating news the following day. Israel Keyes had killed himself in prison that night, which meant those victims would never receive justice. He had committed suicide by using a disposable razor that was embedded into a pencil and he slit his wrists. Now we know that against the wishes of the interrogators, the corrections officers where Keyes was being housed, they kept giving him fresh razors and they kept saying stop. And this is what happened. Investigators were shocked to learn of his death, but they believed that this was basically his ultimate chance to tell them, no. Like, every inch you thought you were gaining with me, it wasn't It wasn't true. Yeah, exactly. This was his ultimate, like, F you to them. Yeah. In the end, he got what he really wanted, to die and to keep his secrets. Yeah, and this kind of goes to what I said um, on the last part, was that this guy has done a really good job at making sure that he always has the upper hand and that he gets what he wants. Right. And I think that he really, and he, he alluded to this several times in his interviews, um, that he wanted to keep some of it for himself because he obviously still got pleasure from the secrets about the murders that he committed and the sexual assaults. And this is something that is made evident by his suicide note. In some parts of the note, which is all written in like a poetry prose, he's basically reliving his murders. And in other parts, he's denouncing American life and capitalism. However, the most chilling are the parts in which he talks about his murders. It's pretty it's pretty disturbing. Also found in his cell were 12 pages. On 11 of those pages were skulls, each drawn using his blood. Underneath one of the skulls, it reads, We are one. The twelfth page is a drawing of a goat's head with an upside-down cross on its forehead in a pentagram formation. The investigators believe 
that those 11 skulls represent the 11 victims that Keyes murdered. And the 12th, that's himself. Wow. Isn't that sick? It's sick. That that was, when yeah. that was found in his cell, I remember that being all over the news and thinking, oh, this guy's so friggin' evil. Yeah. I think also, too, that I think he was doing it for the uh, theatrics of it all, Oh, too. 100%. I mean, let's just, you know, like, let's go out with a bang, you know? And that's exactly what he was doing. Well, Keyes was, and he said this in his interrogations, like, through his interviews, he was obsessed with serial killers, which is kind of scary for the true crime community to hear because so are we, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and he was a student of these serial killers and he learned from every one of them. But what most shocked Keys about all of this stuff was that he read books from FBI profilers, right? Like he read Mindhunter by John Douglas. And he said when he read Mindhunter, he thought, holy shit. This is me. This is exactly how I feel. And he started learning about all of these men that the FBI profilers focused on. And he was taking bits and pieces from everything that everyone did. And he learned from other serial killers' mistakes. And he created these kill kits. And he became, from being a student of all of the information that is out there now... And basically by modifying his own body, because that's what he was trying to do, he was trying to make, like, a super serial killer. Yeah. It's so true, though. And it's scary because yeah. someone's going to learn from him now, too. I guess so. But I guess, like, that's just the... That's just... I feel like that's just an inevitability in the future. I mean, yeah. these are the things that we have, you know, happen. You know, but I think the only thing I'm going to say about Israel Keys is just that after three parts is that... He's someone who teeters between reality and his fantasies. When you got somebody that's like that, that's just able to turn it on and turn it off, I think that not only was he a student of all of those other serial killers, I think that he kind of perfected a, a, a couple of areas that the others weren't able to do. Right. But then I think at the end it got too much for him and he was starting to unravel. And I think at the end there, he just... he And this happened with all the serial killers we know about is he began to unravel because he couldn't control his needs and his desires anymore. And that eventually is going to lead to his downfall. And as much as he said that he wanted to keep this a secret because of his daughter, I think that he did want the glory as well, or else he wouldn't have made drawings of 11 skulls and then a goat's head in a pentagram with his blood while he was bleeding out to death. And also Come to on. take the investigators through this crazy roller coaster ride. Correct. Yeah. So really, if we focus on Israel Keys having 11 murders, right? Like, who are they? So if we go back in time and we think he is responsible for... Like, this is the list that I can think of. The two 12-year-olds, first two, and then the mother of the 12-year-olds. Then he had the three victims in Washington State Park, right? Right. So that brings us to six. Deborah Feldman was seven. Bill and Lorraine Courier, Samantha Koning, and then Jimmy Tidwell. That's 11. Knowing what we know about all of the kill kits that he buried and all of the places he traveled, 
you can't tell me that's it. Well, it doesn't equate to just 11. No, and then so. he would have given all the information out or it would have right. been found already. And I don't think that's true. I think that there's so many victims out there that we don't know that he's responsible for that he kept to himself because he didn't want to give that information away because he wanted to keep that for his fantasy life. Right. And I'm and I, I'm, I'm actually going to say that there's probably kids still buried out there somewhere. Oh, yeah. There has to be. Because we're not talking like 20 years ago. You know right. what I mean? These things in these kits are probably still good. Like they're so they're all yeah. over the place. And I and how I feel is I want to leave the podcast with this. Like this is how I want to end things with Israel Keys. We can speculate all we want, and we can do deep dives, and we can talk to people who knew him, and we can say there's there's eleven victims. There's got to be more than eleven victims. He wasn't responsible for the deaths of the girls, but I think there's so many victims out there that died at the hands of Israel Keys. so many victims that were sexually assaulted by him and some probably children but it's all just speculation because he, and he said this during his interrogation nobody knows me but myself we'll never know the depths that that man's mind could oh, go yeah. to and went to 100 percent. it's terrifying yeah to, to get away with so much stuff and be able to hide so much evidence in the modern day world, I think he got away with so much more than he got caught for. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's it's obvious, you know. All right, guys. So that is uh, the ending of our third part of Israel Keys. We hope you enjoyed it. And um, my God, it feels like weird to be done with it. I know, right? <laughs> You know, it's been three parts, so yes, yes. time to move on. It, it has been. So the next Patreon episodes that we'll have for you is the first Patreon episode for September, which goes out to everybody. And then the second one, which is just for you guys, our $5 and up supporters. So thank you guys for joining us for the third part. And we'll see you soon. All right. Bye. Bye, guys.